Shabbat Shalom. My name is Noel. This is the Unexpected Cosmology. I am a, I just had some, I'm in another hotel room, as you can see, or my office. And I, Brownie points to the coffee selection here. They had like this, they had these different flavors and they had a hazelnut coffee. And I put in the hazelnut line. I'm like, this just isn't any good. So I'm drinking the green tea right now. Last week I had Pamela on. I put her comment right here and great times. Uh, I know a lot of you really love that. I wish I could bring on a guest speaker every single week. I wish every single week I could be on here with a different guest speaker. Uh, but you know, in this environment, it's like <laughs> I love I love Pamela to death. She's amazing. It's hard to find anybody that uh, disagrees with you and doesn't call you a heretic. So. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a bit, <laughs> a bit venomous out there. Uh, anyways, I would love to bring on more people, but alas, you are stuck with me this week. Uh, hopefully that doesn't chase anybody off. We're in the second week of Exodus or Shama Wath, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, the Paleo Hebrew, which is of course, Pamela's translation. And, uh, as also promised, we're going to have this book available very, very, very soon uh, for public sale and for reading and so on and so forth. Can't wait. And there was something else I wanted to say before I dive into this. Oh yeah. Uh, there will be no late, there will be no late show tonight. Unfortunately, I'm sorry for those, for the sad news. And if you do stick around to the end, I have a special treat for you. I will be, we're getting into the Exodus account tonight. How exciting. And of course, what I love about it is they don't cram it all into one week. You get it over two weeks, but at the end of this, I'm going to be reading the Exodus or the, the Passover events from the Egyptian perspective, from the Colbred. And it is, it's wild. I mean, it's like loaded, like how dark this event was. It's crazy to read. Can't read to read it. I can't wait to read it for you guys. So let's get right into this. And um, well, hopefully the sound is good for you guys. If my internet is choppy, I am paying extra for it in my office. So uh, if it is choppy for you guys, I would rather fix it right now. If there's anybody else saying that it is choppy for them, please don't hesitate to write a comment in there. I know there's a certain number of you watching right now because uh, I would hate to get to the end of a two-hour recording and hear it was choppy the whole time. Anyways, um, here's our here's our meme to start us out for the night. Pharaoh's uh, heart hardened even further after Moses busts out guitar and sings Pharaoh, Pharaoh, whoa, baby, let my people go. I'm not going to sing that for you, but I thought that was pretty funny. <clears throat> All right, I'm going to quickly read, I'm going to, because last week, Pamela uh, was doing a great job talking about the name of the father and, and so on and so forth. We're, we, we ended at the burning bush so I'm going to cover a little bit of last week's tour portion. Can you believe it? I'm only two weeks in Exodus. I'm already like way behind. So, oh, good. It's working for you. Thank you. All right, here we go. But while he was a, so we just ended at the uh, burning bush. That's the context. And Moshe is on his way to uh, Mitzrayim to confront Pharaoh at this point. At this point. But while he was upon the road at a resting place, Yahuwah encountered him. And he searched out to kill him. What? Now, if you read the Greek Septuagint, uh, I think it specifically mentions there an angel of Yahuwah. And uh, some of the thought on that is that maybe they put that there to 
lessen the blow because it's pretty intense that this is Yahuwah, the Alahayam of Yasharel, who's coming to personally kill Moshe. But Zapura or Zapura or Zapharaha took a sharp stone and she cut the foreskin of her son and she cast it to his feet and she declared, For a bloody bridegroom, you are to me. <laughs> so he let fall his hand from him. Then she said, a bloody husband you are because of the circumcision. So why didn't Moshe uh, circumcise his son? Well, the thought is, is because he was pretty handicapped by this point because um, she interceded only after her husband was pretty much dead. Like he's almost dead at this point. Yahuwah is taking Moshe out. And so she actually casted his feet. The idea is like he's already like, he's already on the ground. At this point, he's not standing up. All right, so when we see this uh, section here, this is what Yasher has to say about it. And Moses rose up to go to Egypt, and he took his wife and sons with them, and he was at an inn in the road, and an angel of Alahayam. So there you see it says an angel there. It doesn't directly say Yahuwah as the uh, the Paleo or the Masoretic states. An angel of Alahayam came down and sought an occasion against him. And he wished to kill him on account of his firstborn son because he had not circumcised him. So if you didn't get that before, when uh, his wife uh, Zipporah actually goes and circumcises, takes a rock, just cuts it off right there on the spot out of desperation. That's the reason why, in case you didn't pick up on that, because he had not circumcised him and had transgressed the covenant, which Yahuwah had made with Abraham. For Moses had hearkened to the words of his father-in-law, which he had spoken to him, not to circumcise his, to son, his firstborn son. Uh, therefore, he circumcised him not. And Zipporah saw the angel of Yahuwah seeking an occasion against Moshe. And she knew that this thing was owing to his not having circumcised her son, Gershom. And Zipporah hastened and took off the sharp rock stones that were there. And she circumcised her son and delivered her husband and her son from the hand of the angel of Yahuwah. So that pretty much states it right there. Uh, I was going to read you Legends of the Jews, Volume 2. It even gets more wacky because, you know, Legends of the Jews rarely let you down. But I think it's it's pretty straightforward that uh, the reason being was because uh, Moshe listened to his father-in-law. Actually, well, let me go ahead and read this real quick. Um God was, or Elohim was ill-pleased with Moshe for this artifice, and he spake to him, saying, uh, Yosef prophesied long ago that the oppression of Egypt would endure only 210 years. For his lack of faith, Moshe was punished while he was on the road to Egypt. Um, that's really interesting. And so they're, make, they're tying a connection in the religions of the Jews that Moshe already has faith issues, and that's that's not a good thing. Because if you're, if you're the guy who's, you and your brother Aaron are supposed to lead this people and you know you have to be a glutton for punishment you want to lead any group of people much less the Hebrews uh the Torah folk and um he's leading them for 40 years and he has to teach them the law and yet he hasn't even followed through with his own son all right so he's clearly got lack of faith issues especially since well let me finish this uh the angels often Hema 
appeared and swallowed his whole body down to his feet. I don't know if these are like worm angels, you know, this is like Dune or something or what. And they gave him up only after Zipporah, nimble as a bird, circumcised her son Gershom and touched the feet of, the, of her husband with the blood of the circumcision. The reason why their son had remained uncircumcised until then was that Jethro had made the condition when he consented to the marriage of his daughter with Moshe, that the first son of their union should be brought up as a going or a Gentile. So the idea here is that, um, you know, how in the world can you lead a people if you're not leading your own children, right? You're not leading your own son. He is actually raising his son as a goyim, as a Gentile. And um, this may actually speak a, a bit on how estranged Moshe might have been from Yahuwah at this point. Um, and, uh, you know, so he's, he's called, uh, he knows he's on the mountain of Yahuwah. He's called by him and he's kind of like, really? Like me, you want me of all people? Like, you know, send someone else. Like I, you can cl clearly see how unqualified he feels here. He hasn't even circumcised his own son. Um, and so uh, for me, this is, this is, this inner intervention by Yahuwah is like, you need to get your house in order. Like, yeah, you're, you're a dead man. If, if you do not do this. All right. Now I'm going to jump into, uh, Oh, let's see. Oh, Bereshit. So, and so I think here that he, he wanted, uh, he wanted Moshe, Yahuwah wanted Moshe to, um, to really understand this covenant that he was supposedly, supposedly supposed to be advocating here, which we first see in Bereshith chapter 17. And this is what it says. When Abram was 96 years old, Yahuwah, the ever-living, revealed again to Abram and said to him, I am Al Shaddai, walk before me and be you perfect. And I will give a covenant between me and between you, and I will increase you very, very greatly. Now let's skip down to the next yellow print. And it says, Allah Hayam also repeated to Abraham, now this is the covenant which you shall keep as well as your seed after you in their generations. This is the covenant which you shall guard between myself and you and your seed after you circumcise every male of them. And they shall be circumcised in the foreskin of the body for a distinguishing mark of the covenant between myself and them. All right. Now let's uh, get even more controversial here and dip into paul dun 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 and the reason i'm doing this is because it got brought up last week and people uh, i was getting asked why aren't you talking about circumcision uh, i would have loved to we just we didn't get that far in the discussion so i'm trying to make up uh, uh time here now this comes from galatians 2 and the thing is is that um a lot of my followers you guys are you know anti-paul uh i used to be there at one time too for any new viewers, you know, you're like, what? What's going on with this? And um, I actually have a channel on our Discord, uh, The Unexpected Cosmology. You come over there and we have a Paul discussion group where you can um, you can kindly talk about why, you know, Paul is the big bad wolf, the villain. And I don't mean that sarcastically. It's a place where I, I feel that it's a discussion that should be had. Um, now, I was... Uh, I was there at one time and um, actually, you know, this year I'm hoping to, I want to write a whole commentary on Galatians. Galatians is a wild book and I'll, I'll be honest, I'll, I'll still pick up Galatians and I'll go like, what are you saying, Paul? What you talking about, Paul? <laughs> you're doing, you're doing away with the Torah again, aren't you? You know, but it's one of those things when you really wrestle with it and you, and you know, it's so easy to just go, okay, yeah, he's, he's doing away with the Torah. Um, 
But when you really wrestle with it and you just like, what are you saying here, Paul? And try to understand this. And then I'm like, and then he just blows my mind. I'm just like, this is absolutely incredible. I can't believe, you know, like, like the anti-Paul crowd is going to hate this, but it's like, I'll say, I didn't get it. I really didn't get it. And it, this is incredible stuff. Um, so the way, the way it's like is I would, I would encourage, um, there's a there's an analogy I like to use in the Wizard of Oz, the original Elfric Baum book, not the movie. And in the original book, when Dorothy and her three uh, friends, um, her three Theosophist friends, are coming up, the the, the Emerald City is just beyond the hill. They can't see it yet. They get to a, a toll booth or a guard gate, and the guard is like, "Okay, okay, okay. You, before you go over this hill, you have to put on these emerald shade glasses." And they're like, "Why?" And he says, "Well, if you if you go look at the city, it's so glorious, you, you'll you'll go blinded. I think you might even die. I can't remember the text, but it's like you'll definitely go blind. So you got to put on these glasses." And they're like, "Okay." So they believe them. They put on these glasses, and lo and behold, you find at the end of the book that the emerald, the city was never emerald. It was the glasses that did it, right? And so a lot of times when we look at these arguments like with paul it, it's 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 almost like depending on the shade of glasses you're wearing i mean you could put on glasses and like every single thing he says is suspect and and awful and antichrist and villainous and then you put on these other shade of glasses and go like oh no he is the, the truth you know and he is scripture and you know none of the other bible matters because he did away with the Torah. You see what i'm saying but what if there's a third or fourth or fifth way of looking at this what if it's not just you know antichrist or well antichrist what if what if it's not just doing away with the torah what if there's something else going on here um and what if he was a you know one of the greatest patsies ever so uh let's just read this real quick uh again remind i will remind you that for when, when it comes to like um maybe paul not circumcising somebody uh, like here, then, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them the gospel, which I preach among the Goyim, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Dun, dun, dun. Well, who else didn't circumcise was Moses. So just when we're before we throw Paul under the bus for this, you know, might as well throw Moses under with him. Just throw him out. Um, and this occurred because of false. I say that because I don't think Paul's perfect, and I'm okay with that. Uh, and this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in. Who are these false brethren? There's a YouTube channel out there that is advocating that this uh, circumcision group was actually the Jerusalem group. I actually fell for that. I actually really believe that. I, I believe that the circumcision group was Peter and and James and all that. Um, and I didn't have any, it took me a while to understand the historical context here. The circumcision group was a group of Pharisees, um, who were literally going around stating that these were open discussions in the first century that you could not be saved unless you were first circumcised. And this, um, and of course, Yahushua HaMashiach disagreed with that because he never said that. He said you had to be baptized. And that was part of the, the, the argument. So, so according to this, that, you know, throw Yahushua HaMashiach under the bus as well, uh, because he was not circumcising for salvation. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ, uh, or I should say Yahushua HaMashiach, that they might bring us into bondage to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. So what he's saying here is that like, 
it, it, it's almost like Paul is saying like he didn't he did not circumcise Titus just to spite these people. All right, so take that for what what you will. And I'm looking forward to actually doing a um a, a whole commentary on this. In, I feel like this really needs an in-depth series and to kind of peel back the onion layers of what's really going on here. Um, and so this is really interesting here. This is kind of towards uh, chapter six, talking about circumcision again. And, you know, knowing that Paul is really, he's really big about uh, circumcision of the flesh is to no avail if you don't have a circumcision of the heart, right? Circumcision of the heart has to come first. See what with large letters I have written to you with my own hand. Uh, he's hastily writing this letter, and you know it, it's kind of a, a, a temper tantrum letter. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law. You see how I highlighted this here for you. But they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Now, I have to say that... Um, if there was ever a circumcision group, uh, it, it was coming over to Camp Torah, you know, to the Torah keepers. Um, I have found, um, it, it doesn't matter where you go, even if you go to uh, Camp Christian, uh, Christianity, whatever, there's tons of fakers there. There's more fakers there than anywhere. But there are so many fakers here. There are so many people who claim to be Torah, and they make all these profile pictures and all these things about how Torah they are. And they go into Torah groups, and then you find out that they're like, you know, they're they're eating pork every meal and you know things like that just like it's like no you're, you're clearly not keeping the torah you want everyone to think you are but you're you're phony um but then you have these other people who are even bigger phonies and they're who paul's talking about here they're the that they they uh they don't even keep the torah themselves they just want everyone else to be circumcised so they can boast in the fleshiness right this is the big thing between the flesh of ishmael versus the spiritual nature of Yitzhak. And this is why I pointed out in the past, what's so important for me, maybe it's not important for you, but so important for me to understand that Yitzhak was a divine conception, that he was not actually a fleshly conception through Abraham. He actually came through Yahuwah, through a Sharaha. That anyone who's grafted into Israel, a Yitch, a through Yaakov, a through Yitzhak, is, is of a spiritual heritage, not fleshly, right? Um, and I just watched so many people in here where they just, they don't get it. They don't have a circumcised heart. They, they don't have that gnosis of, of understanding that the Torah is a transformative document and they just go around and they want everybody else to keep it. And they don't, they themselves don't keep it. And that's what Paul's saying here. He's like, look, I didn't, I didn't circumcise this guy just to spite you because you guys just want to boast in this and you don't even keep the Torah and he keeps it more than you guys do. That's the whole point he's making here. Now, again, you know, you can agree to disagree, but wanted to cover that. Um, and again, I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to offend. I can never have these discussions without offending tons of people. Apologies. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't hold Paul's letters to be capital scripture. I think that the dude was a dude writing letters, and in that, in that way, I. I give him the grace to be wrong. I'm wrong about tons of things. So if I'm going to hold him up to a standard of if he's wrong about anything, oh, you know, he's he's going to hell. You know, he's he's going to shield and he's never getting out of that place. Well, you know, uh, the, the scary thing is that Allah Hayam is going to judge each of us uh, or Yahuwah is going to judge each of us as we judge others. Um, that's a terrifying thought. 
uh, I'm wrong about so many things. I actually, I'll use the G word. Uh, I want grace. I want grace to be wrong about things. And I want to give grace to other people to be wrong too. I want to give grace to Moshe. Uh, be like, yeah, you didn't circumcise your son, dude. Like you really royally messed up there and you almost died as a result of that. Like I didn't even do that. Like I circumcised my sons. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I'm above Moses on that. Uh, but want to give the guy grace, right? So, all right. Um, let's get right into it tonight. Uh, I wanted to cover that. It, the rest of last Torah portion, you guys know, um, he goes to Pharaoh hard and heart. Whoa, let my people go, that kind of stuff. All right. So here we are, this week's chapter 6, verse 2, uh, verses 9 through 35. Yahuwah the ever-living, actually, this is starting in 6-1, not that that matters. Yahuwah the ever-living, however, answered Meshaha, Behold, I will gift you as Allahayam unto Pharaoh, and Aaron, your brother, he shall exist your prophet. Therefore, you must speak all that I command you to your brother. And he shall repeat to Pharaoh that he must send forth the sons of Yasharel from his land. But I will make Pharaoh's heart obstinate. I will multiply off my evidences and off my wonders in the land of Mitraim. But Pharaoh will not hear and obey unto you. So I will lay my hand upon the Mitraim and will bring up my people, the sons of Yasharel, from the land of Mitraim with great judgments. So that the Mitri will intimately and completely know that I am Yahuwaha, the ever-living. When I stretch out my hand over Mitriim and bring up the sons of Yasharel from among them. When was the last time you were ever in asked to enter a conversation and try to convince someone of some sort of truth? And you know in advance that it's just going to fall on deaf ears and it it's never going to happen. I would think in a lot of ways, some people would think that'd be very defeating. I would think that that would be very liberating because now I'm entering a conversation where um, all I do is just speak truth. I'm not worried about my reputation, so to speak. I'm just gonna speak truth to them and I'm not gonna try to convince them. Like just that releases me of the burden of having to convince someone of the truth. Just speak truth to them. And this is what Moshe is going to do. He, he knows going into this that Pharaoh's heart not going to give in. Now, whether or not he accepts what Yahuwah says or not is a different, um, I guess, a different uh, question to be had. And the reason I say that is because we we see uh, in the commentary that, uh, you know, he he's kind of, um, it's questionable all of uh, what the priests of Midians were really advocating um, clearly, it seems to be that the priests of, Medi the priests of Medi uh, Midian at this point were anti-circumcision. And Abraham, uh, Abraham uh, Moshe obviously went off in that direction. Uh, he thought that, okay, I won't circumcise my son. I'm under this priesthood. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's questionable about how much uh, Moshe at this point, you know, clearly all understood and knew. And uh, if I were to read to you more like Legends of the Jews and Jasher and things like that, it would talk about, you know, Yahuwah kind of criticizes Moshe going like, you don't believe these prophecies. You don't believe these things that have already been spoken. So Meshaha and Aaron fashioned like that which Yahuwah, the ever-living, had commanded them. In that manner, they did it. But Meshaha was 80 years old and Aaron 86 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. So think about that the next time you want to retire and you're in your 70s or 80s, Yahuwah may send you on your biggest mission ever. And, and 
oh man, retirement, 40 years in the wilderness with uh, the Hebrews. I No, thank you. Uh, thus, Yahuwah, the ever, I say no, thank you. I, that's sarcastic. Uh, thus, Yahuwah, the ever living, spoke to Mashaha and Aaron, saying, Since Pharaoh has said to you, give us evidence, instruct Aaron, take your branch before Pharaoh and before his ministers, and he will exist of uh, she, uh, um, Pamela here puts the word thunu, uh, thunuyan, and that is, you can see there the note, dragon or sea monster. That totally tripped me out when I saw it because all other Bibles just say serpent, like a snake. And when I saw that, that just totally tripped me out, and I'll, I'll show you why in a little bit. Meshaha and Aaron therefore went to Pharaoh and did as Yahuwah, the ever-living commanded, and he cast down his branch to the face of Pharaoh and to the face of his ministers, and he will exist of uh, Thunuyan. And that, again, that's uh, the note there for dragon or sea monster. But Pharaoh, so this is like giving me the picture that this is literally a dragon. Like this isn't just a snake. Like it, it became like something like a, you know, I think of like a, a, a dinosaur-like creature type of thing, you know, on two legs, maybe, you know, the size of a human or something like that, or maybe like a something as large as a crocodile or something, but it became something really big, you know. But Pharaoh summoned the wise men and enchanters, and they, the sacred scribes, fashioned a flaming metal rod. That's really interesting translation there. They fashioned a flaming metal rod, and he cast down every man his rod, and they existed of dragons. It's almost like, like a, like, <laughs> they became like lightsabers. That's how I'm envisioning it, you know, like Darth Maul, you know, and then they throw it down, these dragons come up. But Aaron's branch devoured their rods. However, the heart of Pharaoh was strong, and he would not listen to them, just as Yahuwah, the ever-living, had foretold. All right. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the rod of Yahuwah. This was something that I didn't cover last week. I wanted to. And in fact, I'll be expected to be a video in the next couple of weeks. The reason I didn't record it, I had the script all ready to go. And then I'm studying for this today, and I'm like, oh, my goodness. Because I know, because if you recall... I talked about, uh, if you guys watch my videos, uh, I did this whole thing on King Arthur and the, the prophecy of Merlin of the white and the red dragon. All right. Maybe I'll ring some bells for you right now. I'll be talking about that tonight. But let's talk about the rod of Yahuwah. So this is the rod that Moshe has in his hands. This is what Jasher has to say. This is uh, contextually when he is uh, still, he's, he's arrived in Midian and he wants to marry Zipporah, uh, Jethro's, Jethro's uh, daughter. And it was that while he prayed, he looked opposite to him, and behold, a sapphire stick was placed in the ground, which was planted in the midst of the garden. So this, this sapphire stick, it's planted in the garden. And he approached the stick, and he looked, and behold, the name of Yahuwah, Allahayam of host, was engraved thereon, written and developed upon the stick. And he's like, well, that's interesting. Now he recognizes the Elohim, and he re he read it and stretched forth his hand, and he plucked it like a forest tree from the thicket, and the stick was in his hand. And this is the stick with which all the works of our Allahayam were performed after he had created heaven and earth, and all the host of them, seas, rivers, and all their fishes. So this is tripping me out right here, and this is before I read Pamela's translation about the dragon, and I'm going, because you guys remember all like the Leviathan research I went through and how the the god of of eden was the seven-headed leviathan 
and they claim that he was the one that created the world. And so you have this war between like this serpentine, this female serpent god who supposedly created the world or Alahayam created the world. And you see it like in the Baal cycles and all this stuff. And so now you got a stick that becomes a serpent, actually becomes a dragon. And with this stick, the world was created. So you can see me like just like hyperventilating as I'm reading this, you know, in a good way. I'm like, you know, flipping out like, like this is awesome. You know, I love research. So this is the stick with which all the works of our Allah Hayyam were performed after you created heaven and earth and all the host of them, seas, rivers, and their fishes. And when Allah Hayyam had driven Adam from the Garden of Eden, he took the stick in his hand, and I'm guessing he being Adam, and went and tilled the ground from which he was taken. And the stick came down to Noah and was given to Shem and his descendants until it came into the hand of Abraham the Hebrew. And when Abraham... Abraham had given all he had to his son Yitzhak, he also gave him this stick. And when Yaakov had fled to Padam Aram, he took it into his hand, and when he returned to his father, he had not left it behind him. Also, when he went down to Egypt, interesting here, like, the totally skips over um, uh, Yehuda and his stick. So that's kind of interesting. And uh, when he went, and I'll be talking about that in the video, uh, not tonight though. And when he went down to Egypt, he took it into his hand and gave it to Yosef, one portion above his brethren, for Yaakov had taken it by force from his brother Esau. And after, so I actually think this um, stick went to Reuben, and then when he lost the birthright, it went to Yehuda. And after the death of Yosef, the nobles of Egypt came into the house of Yosef, and the stick, stick came into the hand of Reuel and the Midianite. And when he went out of Egypt, he took it in his hand and planted it in his garden. So from so if you if you get that swap there, Yosef, he he's got it in his hands. As soon as he, he dies, Egyptians go in, they loot his house, take all his things, and they have the stick. Reuel, he is the priest of Midian, he's in there, he sees it, and he like out of a duty, uh, I think to Yahuwaha, he goes, like, I know the stick, I know the name on that stick. This does not belong here in Egypt. Uh, he may have even known its history and what it was purpose for, and he straight up stole it from Pharaoh. He just stole and ran off. He took in his hands and planted in his garden. And all the mighty men of the Kenites tried to pluck it when they endeavored to get Zipporah, his daughter, but they were unsuccessful. So all these men lined up, and uh, nobody can pull the sword from the stone, prove their worth to marry his eldest daughter. So that stick remained planted in the garden of Reuel until he came who had a right to it and took it. That would be Moshe. And when Reuel saw the stick in the hand of Moshe, he wondered at it, and he gave him his daughter Zipporah for a wife. All right, so this now comes from the legends of the Jews. Let's see what they have to say about it. One of the seven maidens whom Moshe saw at the will attracted his notice, in particular on account of her modest demeanor, and he made her a proposal of marriage. But Zipporah repulsed him, saying, My father has a tree in his garden with which he tests every man that expresses a desire to marry one of his daughters. And as soon as the suitor touches the tree, he is devoured by it. Moses said, whence has he the tree? And Zipporah said, it is the rod of the Holy One. Let's see if you guys can read that. Blessed be he created in the twilight of the first Sabbath Eve and gave it to Adam. He transmitted it to Enoch. From him it descended to Noah. They added the Enoch in there, right? They didn't say that in Jasher. <clears throat> then to Shem and Abraham and Yitzhak and finally to Yaakov, who brought it with him to Egypt and gave it to his son, Yosef. When Yosef died, the Egyptians pillaged his house and the rod, which was in their booty, they brought to Pharaoh's palace. At that time, my father 
was one of the most prominent of the king's sacred scribes, and as such, he had the opportunity of seeing the rod. He felt a great desire to possess it, and he stole it and took it to his house. On this rod, the ineffable name is graven, and also the ten plagues that Abahayam will cause to visit the Egyptians in a future day, which we'll hopefully cover tonight. For many years, it lay in my father's house. One day he was walking in his garden carrying it, and he stuck it in the ground. When he attempted to draw it out again, he found that it had, it had sprouted and was putting forth blossoms. That is the rod with which he try, tries any that desire to marry his daughter. He insists that our suitors shall attempt to pull it out of the ground, but as soon as they touch it, it devours them. All right. So here we have the, uh, the sword in the stone, um, sword in the anvil here. And uh, in... Le Morte de Arthur by Thomas Mallory. There's a quote from it there. Whoso pulleth out the sword of the stone and Advil is right is rightwise uh, king born of all England. And of course, Robert de Baron said in Merlin, Arthur kneeling took the sword in both hands and raised it from the anvil as easily as if nothing held it and carried it back held high. They led him to the altar and he laid the sword upon it. And when he had done so, they blessed him and anointed him and performed all the rites necessary for making uh, the king. Now, uh, just quick note here: this is not Excalibur. Excalibur is a different sword. And I personally think what's happening here. Now, this I've noticed years ago. I'm like, huh, the sword in the stone story is a lot like the Jasher story. And is it possible that they were creating the story? Was it repetitive, or were they creating a story based off of Jasher? Well, now that I've got into the Millennial Kingdom research, this hit me, and I'm like. I think this is legitimate. I think this happened. And what I don't have here, the quote in front of me, when I put out my video in a couple of weeks, uh, you could read this. Uh, you could read the article now on my website. Uh, I talk about how this rod apparently passed to Joseph of Arimathea. And in the book of Britain, it straight up says that this, this he went with this rod to Britain. And after he died, it passed to his, uh, his disciple, a female disciple. And the Druids were coming up and challenging her and she actually planted this and it sprung flowers, just like it did for uh, 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 Reuel in the, in the garden. Uh, so really interesting stuff. And I wonder if there was a situation where, because we see in Revelation that Yahushua will come in the Millennial Kingdom and he will, he will rule with a rod of iron. And I wonder if this is the same rod, the same staff of Moshe. And if there was a situation that arose where he came and he, plucked it up and proved his worth. And um, and then the Arthurian writers basically to, to pull away from that, you know, they had their king Arthur do the same thing. Uh, so this is what really tripped me out when I talked about the dragons, because if you recall, I did this presentation. It's also an article. It's going to be my book that's going to be released next month, The 7,000-Year Timeline Deception. And I talked about King Arthur, uh, the, the prophecy that Merlin gave regarding uh to pendragon uh the the idea that the red dragon represents arthur and the white dragon represents this new kingdom that was about to come in the saxons who if you know my theory i believe the saxons were the sons of yitshak right the house of israel and it said that these this white dragon would come in and conquer the red and uh that when that would happen they would rule for a time but then the red dragon would return and you can see all right here it talks about the the, the red dragon signify, no, I'm sorry, the white dragon signifies the Saxons. The red denotes the true British nation. That would be Arthur and Camelot. Um, and you can see here on the, the Welsh flag, they have chosen that their identity is the red dragon. Uh, you can see the war there 
between the red and the white dragon. The white dragon represents, I believe, Yahusha HaMashiach. Um, and, and so when you see his staff become a dragon, and then the Egyptians, the magicians, their staffs become dragons, I'm thinking this is the red and the white dragon. And I think this is the white dragon that fought the red dragon and ate them up. I mean, I was tripping out when I saw it. I'm like, oh, it's a repeat in Arthurian legend uh, with the end of Camelot being destroyed. Uh, but, you know, the New World Order, they look at Camelot as their version of the true kingdom, whereas Camelot was destroyed by the true kingdom, the Dark Ages, right? So anyways, uh, and then quickly here, uh, this is King Henry VII, father of King Henry VIII, of the many wives of King Henry VIII. King Henry VIII, of course. So King Henry VII, he's the one that first raised the red dragon again. Really interesting. Uh, he was the one to apparently fulfill this prophecy of Merlin that the red dragon would return. He raises the red dragon. He starts the house with the Tudors. And his son, King Henry VIII, was uh, shockingly, like nobody told me this. I had to discover this. Uh, he, he destroyed like 800 uh, millennial kingdom structures, like shocking them out in like several short years. He just went on a rampage, destroyed them all in England, uh, not in other countries. Just they're just ruins. So that's uh, pretty telling. All right. All right. And then let's see, what do we got here uh, for lack of time? I'm trying to figure out what I have this long Jasher passage. Um, wow, this is long. <laughs> this is, I'm going to read to you guys anyways. Here we go. Let's have fun tonight. Let's read. Jasher chapter 79, 19 through 57. I need a quick drink of tea. And Moshe and Aaron came to Egypt to the community of the children of Yasharil, and they spoke to them all the words of Yahuwah. And the people rejoice and an exceeding great rejoicing. Of course, they you know they always rejoice in the beginning, but then the, the crowd turns pretty quickly. And <laughs> if you just study the biography of Moshe, which we will for the following year. And um, the crowd is always turning pretty quickly. And Moshe and Aaron rose up early on the next day, and they went to the house of Pharaoh, and they took in their hands the stick of, of uh, Alahayam. And when they came to the king's gate, two young lions were confined there with iron instruments. And no person went out or came in before them unless those whom the king ordered to come. When the conjurers came and withdrew the lions by their incantations and this brought them to the king and moshe hastened and lifted up the stick upon the lions and he loosed them and moshe and aaron came into the king's house the lions also came with them in joy and they followed them and rejoiced as a dog rejoices over his master when he comes from the field um kind of reminds me of a kind of a lion and a lamb situation there uh you know the the coming of the kingdom where the lions would be uh, not be ferocious on all his holy mountain. Not the whole world, mind you, just his holy mountain. And when Pharaoh saw this thing, he was astonished at it. And he was greatly terrified at the report, for their appearance was like the appearance of the children of Allah Hayam. I love that line. And Pharaoh said to Moshe, what do you require? And they answered him saying, uh, Yahuwah Allah Hayam of the Hebrews has sent us to thee to say, send forth my people that they may serve me. That's when they broke out into the song. And when Pharaoh heard their words, he was greatly terrified before them. And he said to them, maybe he needed a... Every time I hear Pharaoh talking, it reminds me of James Earl Jones, the voice of Darth Vader. If you guys ever watched those uh, Hanna-Barbera greatest stories ever told, which I still love that series. I watch it. I show it to my children all the time. But... <laughs> The voice of Pharaoh in the Exodus one is actually James Earl Jones. So I can't hear Pharaoh without hearing Darth Vader talking. 
which I'm not going to try to mimic, but in your head, you can hear Darth Vader talking. And go today and come back to me tomorrow. And they did according to the word of the king. And when they had gone, Pharaoh sent for Balaam the magician and to Janus and Jambres, his son. So there you go. If you ever wanted to know when Paul talks about Janus and Jambres, um, the, the only source information really we have on them comes from Jasher, interestingly enough. And uh, for everyone out there trying to say that the Jasher is a later uh, hoax, it's like, oh, yeah, the Jews were trying to prove Paul, I guess. Uh, but interesting enough, it, it says that they're uh, Balaam's sons. And to all the magicians and conjurers and counselors which belonged to the king. And they all came and sat before the king. And the king told them all the words which Moshe and his brother Aaron had spoken to him. And all the magicians said to the king, But how came the men to thee on account of the lions which were confined at the gate? And the king said, Because he lifted up the rod against the lions and loosed them and came to me. And the lions also rejoiced them as a dog rejoices to meet his master. Can you imagine that? If that is actually a scene, man, I need to do a whole paper on this. Can you imagine if that was the scene in the millennial kingdom where Yahushua HaMashiach, he comes to Britain. You guys know that I think that like in our realm, Britain was like ground zero. Uh, the, 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 the stone of scone was there. The, the, the staff of, uh, of Moshe or Yahuwah, or you could say Joseph of Arimathea was there. Can you imagine like pulling up this, this staff and then just like walking and like you know, the, the lines come bounding up to him, you know, lion and lamb right there, right? Can you just imagine that scene? And all the kings of the earth are just like perplexed at this. And the king, and I, by the way, I think that when he came, I, I don't think it was just overnight, you know, hallelujah. I, I think it was very similar to this. I think that people's hearts were super hardened when he came. And I, I showed that in, in past uh, papers. And the king said, because he lift, lifted up the rod against the lions and loose them and came to me and the lions also rejoiced at them as a dog rejoices to meet his master and Balaam the son of Beor the magician answered the king saying these are none else than magicians like ourselves now therefore send for them and let them come and we will try them and the king did so and in the morning Pharaoh sent for Moshe and Aaron to come before the king and they took the rod of Alahayam and came to the king and spoke to him saying thus says Yahweh Alahayam of the Hebrews Send my people that they may serve me. And the king said to them, But who will believe you that you are the messengers of Allah Hayam and that you come to me by his orders? Now therefore give a wonder or sign in this matter. Then the words which you speak will be believed. And Aaron uh, hastened and threw the rod out of his hand before Pharaoh and before his servants, and the rod turned into a serpent. And the sorcerers saw this, and they cast each man his rod upon the ground, and they became serpents. And of course now it's like, I'd like to see, <laughs> I'd like to see Pamela have a shot at translating Jasher. And the serpent of Aaron's rod lifted up its head and opened its mouth to swallow the rods of the magicians. And Balaam, the magician, answered and said, This thing has been from the days of old, that a serpent should swallow its fellow, and, and that living things devour each other. Now, therefore, restore it to a rod as it was at first, and we will also restore our rods as they were at first. And if remember, these are like lightsabers, right? Like these things like, you know, glow. And if thy rod shall swallow our rods, then shall we know that the, that the Ruach of Allah Hayam is in thee. And if not, thou art only an artificer like unto ourselves. And that's quite the challenge. Um, it's it's kind of like, you know, just keep moving the goalie net, right? And Aaron hastened and stretched forth his hand and caught hold of the serpent's tail and became a rod in his hand. And the sorcerer did the like with their rods. That had to be an incredible scene to watch. And they got hold, each man of the tail of the serpent, and they became rods as a as a first and then when they were restored to rods the rod of Aaron swallowed up their rods and when the king saw this thing he ordered the book of 
records that related to the kings of Egypt to be brought. And they brought the book of records, the chronicles of the kings of Egypt, in which all the idols of Egypt were inscribed. For they thought of finding therein the name of Yahuwah, but they found it not. Um, now, that's maybe it's because they were looking at the book of idols, right? And Yahuwah is not an idol. Uh, but this is what I talked about in past weeks, that Yahuwah had to have been scrubbed. And I think this is further evidence of how easily history is scrubbed and rewritten. Because we're seeing it happen right here. We're, we're literally seeing that Yosef, not that much longer, was second in command. And according to Jasher, he actually becomes first in command after Pharaoh dies. He is ruling Mitraim, and he's worshiping Yahuwah, and yet there's no record of him. So how in the world does that happen? Well, it happens pretty easily, actually, uh, depending on who's in charge. And that's how easy, that's how you know easily our own history is rewritten. When we're talking about, like, you know, did the millennial kingdom already happen? Yeah, they can scrub it. They can scrub the whole thing. And Pharaoh said to Moshe and Aaron, Behold, I have not found the name of your Allah Hayam written in this book, and his name I know not. And the counselors and wise... It's almost like it's almost irony because they say the same thing about the Exodus, right? They're like, I, I see no record of the Exodus in any of these books, right? It's like, well, yeah, of course you don't. Um, though there is actually proof of it. I, I should back that up a little bit. But um, and Pharaoh said to Moshe and Aaron, Behold, I have not found oh yeah. And the counselors and wise men answered the king, We have heard that the Alahayam of the Hebrews is a son of the wise, the son of ancient kings. That's interesting. Let me say that again. We have heard that the Allah Hayam of the Hebrews is a son of the wise, the son of ancient kings. Hmm. Are they talking about Yahuwah here being the son of the Most High? That's interesting. And Pharaoh turned to Moshe and Aaron and said to them, I know not Yahuwah whom you have declared, or the, the Lord. It could be Adonai, I'm not really sure there. Neither will I send his people. And they answered and said to the king, Yahuwah, Allah Hayam of Alahayam is his name, and he proclaimed his name over us from the days of our ancestors and sent us, saying, Go to Pharaoh and say unto him, Send my people that they may serve me. Now therefore send us, and we might, may take a journey for three days in the wilderness, and there may sacrifice to him. For from the days of our going down to Egypt, he has not taken from our hands either burnt offering, oblation, or sacrifice. And if thou wilt not send us, his anger will be kindled against thee, and he will smite Egypt, either with the plague or with the sword. And Pharaoh said to them, tell me now his power and his might. I can totally see James Earl Jones saying that. And they said to him, he created the heaven and the earth, the seas and all their fishes. He formed the light, created the darkness, caused rain upon the earth and watered it, and made the herbage and grass to sprout. He created man and beast and the animals of the forest, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, and by his mouth they live and die. Fasting right there because he's basically describing a bunch of different gods of Egypt who he's about to take out. Surely he created thee in thy mother's womb and put into thee the breath of life and reared thee and placed upon thee upon the royal throne of Egypt. And he will take thy breath and soul from thee and return thee to the ground whence thou was taken. And the anger of the king was kindled. I could totally see how he'd be angry at that. He's like, how dare you say that your God put me in my throne? Like how, like just the audacity to come here in front of me and say that, like, you know, off with your head. And he said to them, but who amongst all that Allah Hayam of nations can do this? My river is my own, and I have made it for myself. And he drove them from him, and he ordered the labor upon Yashorel to be more severe than it was yesterday and before. And here's where the, the, the crowd turns. Like that, 
you know, that went south pretty quickly. And Moshe and Aaron went out from the king's presence and they saw the children of Yashorel in an evil condition for the taskmasters, the taskmasters had made their labor exceedingly heavy. And Moshe returned to Yahweh and said, why has thou ill-treated thy people? For since I came to speak to Pharaoh, what thou didst send me for, he has exceedingly ill-used the children of Yashorel. It's like Moshe like didn't, like he was probably imagining in his mind what it might be like for Pharaoh not to listen to him, but he wasn't thinking this. And, you know, when these, these trials come, like this is where, man, this is where it hits the fan. This is where like, you know, separates the boys from the men. And you see many people when they, they see these kind of things happen that they just fall away from the faith. Right. And uh, we've been through this with the, uh, the book of wisdom and, and some of those where, uh, the book of Britain, where these things happen to to chisel us and to form us into this, you know, we go through these trials, even though they're painful and they don't make sense to us to actually mold us more into the image of Allah Hayam. And this is what, you know, Yahuwah is about to call them out. And he's, he's like, really, this is like boot camp right now. He's, he's training them for what they're about to go through. They're kicking and screaming the whole way, but um, you know, and only the, the, the the most fit are going to make it through right the most spiritually fit and yahuwah has said to moshe behold that will see that with an outstretched hand and heavy plagues pharaoh pharaoh will send the children of yashiro from his hand and moshe and aaron dwelt amongst their brother and the children of uh, yashiro in egypt and as for the children of yashiro the egyptians embittered their lives with the heavy work which they imposed upon them now a quick to note out to note here uh, did you just notice that in, according to Jasher, it said they went to live with the children of Yasharel. So all they did is they went to Pharaoh, they threw down the rods, serpents, nothing came of it. They went to live with Yasharel. And according to Jasher, two years passed between this and the next plague. Two years. They're living with them. Another thing to note here is that why is Aaron and Moshe not in the field working? I thought they were all slaves. Well, if you recall, I think I read you the text. The, the Levites never gave consent to be ruled as slaves. And so that's the problem, the fix we're in, is that uh, our parents and their parents and their parents have slowly consented more and more for us to be slaves until we're in this predicament. And we're like, how in the world did we get here? And so we're trying to, you know, hopefully learn from this and pull our children further out of slavery. Uh, but that's what the Levites, they never consented. And so they did not have to be in the fields working. They're over there doing their priestly duties, you know, learning the Torah, learning the law. And Moshe and Aaron could just walk around and bother Pharaoh all day. He could not force them. He, he could not whip them into the fields because they didn't give their consent. Really interesting to think about. All right. Yahuwah, the ever-living, getting back into the paleom. Yahuwah, the ever-living, then declared unto Mashaha. The heart of Pharaoh is not easily moved to allow the people to depart. Confront Pharaoh in daybreak. Behold, he rises up to bathe, and you will stand opposite to meet him at the edge of the river. When he calls out, you will take the branch which turned into the Nakash. So there, uh, Nakash actually means serpent. And uh, Pamela left it there, Nakash, the word. Let me just see. Let me look at the bottom of the page just to be sure. sure. Yeah, serpent. Nakash is serpent. In your hand, then say to him, Yahuwah, the ever-living Allahiah of the Hebrews, has sent me to you to say, Send forth my people, that they may serve me in the wilderness. 
Now, keep in mind, according to Jasher, the two years have passed. <clears throat> Behold, if you will not listen to that, thus says the ever-living, by this you will learn that I am Yahuwah. When I strike with the branch which is in my hand upon the waters which are in the river, they shall turn to blood, and the fish which are in the river shall die, and the river shall stink, and the mitrie will become exhausted trying to drink of the water of the river. Yahuwah, the ever-living, also said to Meshaha, Declare unto Aaron, Take your branch and extend it over the waters of Mitraim, over the flowing streams, over the brooks, the pools, and over all the reservoirs of water, and they will become blood. And they shall be blood in all the land of Mitraim, both in wood and stone. Pamela, if you're here, I'm actually curious. I didn't ask, I didn't, uh, ask Pamela on the side this because of preparing. I wish I did. When she's translating this as branch, um, how does she picture this? Is this literally like a branch, like a wand, like a magician's wand? Or are we dealing with, you know, I always, you know, I talked about, you know, the rod, right? The staff that Moshe has, but then it also talks about a branch, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I, I just, I think of something like from like, you know, Harry Potter or something like that. Therefore, Meshaha and Aaron did as the ever-living commanded. And he lifted up the branch and he struck off the waters which were in the river before the eyes of Pharaoh and before the eyes of, the, of his ministers. And all the waters in the river turned to blood. And the fish which were in the river died and the river stank. And the Mitrei were not able to drink of the water from the river for it became blood in all the land of Mitrei. The sacred scribes of Mitraim, however, did the same in their mysteries. I love that line. Thank you, Pamela, for putting that in there. Where <laughs> I checked is like I didn't see other translations with mysteries. Uh, I think I, I saw like sorcery or magic, but uh, the sacred scribes of Mitraims, however, did the same in their mysteries. Of course, they're coming out of the mystery religions, the mysteries of Isis and different things like that. Therefore, the heart of Pharaoh was strengthened. And he would not listen to them. He's like, look, you know, that that's messed up what you did to my river, but uh, you should be punished for it. But my magicians can do the same thing. So I, I'm, you know, you probably just learned it from them. You grew up in, you know, you grew up in Egypt. Uh, just as it's, you know, whatever, snake oil salesman, whatever. Just as Yahuwah, the ever living, has foretold. Pharaoh therefore turned his face and went back to his and did not alter his heart even for this. But all the Mitrei dug pits along the river for water to drink, for they were not able to drink the waters from the river. This continued for seven days after Yahuwah, the ever-living, had attacked the waters of the river. All right, getting back to Jasher, let's see, or Yasher, let's see what it says. And at the end of two years, Yahuwah, so again, two years. Now imagine this, like you're, you're going into to Egypt to, you know, to free the people. You're, you're on a mission from God, from Allah Hayam. You go there, go in front of them. He's, he's like, you're like, let my people go. He's like, nope, not going to do it. And you're like, okay. And you just leave and you go live amongst the Egyptians. Two years pass, two years. That's like, you know, COVID time. I mean, you're just, it, and like all the people are like, okay, you're here to free us. What are you going to do? I'm like, I don't know. I don't have another plan. That was it. So kind of interesting, a lot, you know, a lot could have gone down in the two years. And it doesn't help now that he's probably not too popular that they're having to work harder uh, because he's there. So how do you think that goes over on your Shabbats? So at, and at the end of two years, Yahuwah again sent Moshe to Pharaoh 
to bring forth the children of Yasharel and to send them out of the land of Egypt. And Moshe went and came to the house of Pharaoh and spoke to him the words of Yahuwah who had sent him. The Pharaoh would not hearken to the voice of Yahuwah. And Allah Hayam roused his might in Egypt upon Pharaoh and his subjects. And Allah Hayam smote Pharaoh and his people with very great and sore plagues. And Yahuwah sent by the hand of Aaron and turned all the waters of Egypt into blood with all their streams and rivers. And when an Egyptian came to drink and draw water, he looked into his pitcher, and behold, all the water was turned into blood. And when he came to drink from the cup, the water in the, the cup became blood. And when a woman kneaded her dough and cooked her victuals, their appearance was turned of blood. Then Yahuwah, the ever-living, declared to Al-Mashaha. That's really fascinating. I, I need to do like a whole study too on how sometimes the names of uh, these patriarchs would have uh, El or, uh, or Al in front of it as a, representat a representation of Allah Hayam. Anyways, Yahuwah says to him, go to Al-Pharaoh, interesting comparison there, right? He's not calling him Pharaoh now, he's Al-Pharaoh, and say to him, thus says Yahuwah, the ever-living, send forth my people to serve me. But if you will not send them, then I will plague all your dominions with frogs. And the flowing stream with swarm will swarm with frogs, and they will go up, and they will enter in your house, and in the chamber of your resting place, and upon your bed, and in the house of your servants, and in your people, and in your ovens, and in your kneading bowls, and in you, you, and in you, <laughs> and in your people, and in all your servants, the frogs will come up. Wow, Yahuwah has really thought through this. Like, he's getting very descriptive about what will happen. And Yahuwah, the ever-living, declared unto Al-Mashaha, Tell Al-Aaron, stretch out your hand over the flowing streams, the rivers, and over the marshes, and cause to come up uh, frogs upon the earth, or Arat's Matrim. Aaron consequently stretched out his hand over the waters of Matrim, and frogs came up and plagued the land of Matrim. The sacred scribes, however, did the same with their hidden arts, and they also brought up frogs upon the land of Matrim. Pharaoh, however, summoned Mashaha and Aaron and said, Entreat all Yahuwah. You know, just pause here. And I just, you know, I, I've said this so many times that one of the great um, miscalculations that Christianity has done is sold this idea that the Bible is a monotheistic book. Okay, it is not a monotheist. I mean, you guys know this. My listeners know this. I'm preaching to the choir at this point. Uh, but I, I tell this that it, so a lot. There's a, this idea that um, that Christianity holds a monopoly on prayer. That you know you you pray to your God and He will answer your prayer. But all the other people they're praying to nobody, right? And it's that's actually not what happens. I mean, you you can have there are many gods as you guys know. You can pray to this God. And this God can listen to you and He can answer your prayer. Um, the good luck with that, you know, with having a covenant with that God. Uh, but the, the idea here is that you know we just we just saw that these uh, magicians who were under the sway of these Elohim of Egypt, and I didn't prepare tonight the study. Maybe next year, you know, all the different how each of these plagues. Um, you guys have probably all heard it before, but how each of these plagues identify with a different Elohim. It's interesting that they are calling out to their Elohim and they're able to perform. Um, so, you know that that's one of the things that like. 
when people aren't like taught this and they they come to find this out and they freak out and they like leave the faith it's like really because you heard there were like other gods and stuff and how i guess none of this is true anymore and it's like no they're <laughs> You can you can pray to many different gods and be healed or whatever you know have your prayers answered. Um, apparently, other gods can bring frogs out of the uh, bloody water. Pharaoh, okay, so let's see. Pharaoh, however, summoned Mashaha and Aaron, and said, "Entreat Al Yahuwah, the ever living, that he may turn away the frog from my eyes and from my touch, that I will release the people, and they shall sacrifice to Yahuwah the ever living." Isn't that interesting? That um his magicians could not take the frogs away they could bring them but moshe the troublemaker brought you know brought them out they couldn't do away with it but mashaha replied to pharaoh you glorify yourself upon me until when i should pray for you and your servants and your people to drive away the frogs from you and from your place except that there may be a few in the river what do you think those nights sounded like you know? <laughs> if you guys have ever been you know next to a noisy chorus of frogs uh man if they're in your kitchen too and in your bathroom and in your kneading bread and in your bed <laughs> oh man and he said to this time tomorrow and he will declare it will be done as you say so that you may know that there is none like yahuwah our allah um, our allah haya and the frogs will turn back from you and from your place and from your servants and from your people only in the flowing stream will they remain and Meshaha and Aaron went out from Pharaoh. I think that answers the question. They weren't toads. Uh, they went back to the flowing stream. Uh, he he uh, cried out to, toward out Yahuwah, the ever-living, because of the debar, or the matter, of the frogs, which he had promised to Pharaoh. And the ever-living did just like the matter set in order by Meshaha, and the frogs died from the houses, from the streets, and from the fields. And they piled them into heaps. Have you guys, I mean, we've probably all seen frog bones. Can you imagine all those frog bones? They'd be digging those things out for years to come. They'd be finding all those frog bones. Just when you thought you got them all, you know, you overturn another stone and oh, there's like three or four more. And they piled them into heaps, corrupted, rotting, and the land stink from all that wonderful frog flesh. Uh, rotting frog flesh. And when, but when Pharaoh observed that relief existed, then his heart grew vehement and he would not listen to them just as Yahuwah the ever living had foretold. Now, you know, scientifically here, you can see the cause and effect. You know, you could see how the flies would come next and so on and so forth. <clears throat> and it's almost like each one gets more exponential as they go along. Okay, Yasha chapter 80. Let's see what this says about the plagues. And Yahuwah sent again and caused all the waters to bring forth frogs, and all the frogs came into the house of the Egyptians. And when the Egyptians drank, their bellies were filled with frogs. That is so disgusting. And they danced in their bellies as they danced when in the river. Lovely thought. So next time you think about drinking water, there was a frog in the, you know, they're just like born as they like inside of you. And all their drinking water and cooking water turned to frogs. Talk about a frog boiling in a pot. Also, when they lay in their bed, their perspiration bred frogs. <laughs> uh, good times. Consequently, Yahuwah, the ever-living, getting back into the paleo, declared to Meshaha, say to Aaron, stretch out your branch and beat the dust of the earth, and it shall become as gnats in all, all the land of Mitzrayim. Lovely. Are these like those biting, like, noceums that, you know, 
tear up your legs. The sacred scribes also tried by their hidden arts to fashion the same and bring forth gnats, but they were not able. So this is where it cuts off. They could do the snakes or the, the dragons. They could do the, uh, the blood. They could do the frogs. Apparently, they can't do the gnats. You would think gnats would be easier to produce than frogs, but, you know, go figure. I mean, if I had to perform a magic trick and deliver 100 frogs out of my hat or 100 gnats, I mean, which do you think I could deliver easier? These gnats assailed both men and beasts. Then the sacred scribes reported to Pharaoh, this is the finger of Allah Hayyam. So they're finally like his own wizards are like, they're getting it now. They're like, this is beyond our gods. This is truly the finger of Allah Hayyam. That's such an exciting um, phrase there. Confession. But Pharaoh quenched his heart and would not listen to them just as Yahuwah the Ever-Living has had foretold. Therefore, Yahuwah the Ever-Living declared toward Al-Mashaha, Arise at daybreak and stand yourself up to the face of Pharaoh. Behold, he is going out into the waters, and you will say to him in this matter, <clears throat> Thus says Yahuwah the Ever-Living, Release my people, and they will serve me. For if you do not send away my people, I will myself send against you and your servants and your houses a horde of gadflies and the houses of mitrine will be filled with the horde and also the ground which they are upon and i know keep in mind this is like like i said it is a cause and effect some people don't like to hear that you, you can kind of see the cause and effect uh, you know we got a lot of uh you got a bloody water you get the frogs coming out and then the frogs die and then the, the flies and the gnats come in um, but keep in mind that Yahuwah is like, look, I can refrain this. I can keep this from happening, uh, you know, if you just repent, right? And the houses of Mitzrayim, and, and of course the other, the other gods, as you recall, cannot get rid of it. And the houses of Mitzrayim will be filled with the horde and also the ground which they are upon. And I will make the land of Goshen or Gashen, upon which my people dwell, to be distinct in this day, for the horde shall not be theirs. So there you go. So that you may know that I am Yahuwah the ever-living, am in the midst of Harats or Ha'arats, the earth. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign, he will exist. <clears throat> Excuse me. And Yahuwah the ever-living did it. For swarms of gadflies came into the palace of Pharaoh and the houses of his servants, and to all the land of Mitzrayim, the gadflies spread over all the land. Then Pharaoh summoned Mashaha and Aaron and said, Walk, sacrifice to your Allah Hayyam in this country. But Mashaha replied, We were not instructed to do so. For if we were to sacrifice the idol of the Matrayah in their sight, uh, would they not stone us? Well, let me say that again. For if we were to sacrifice, yeah, the idol of Matrayah in their sight, would they not stone us? We must walk for three days' journey into the wilderness. And sacrifice to Yahuwah, the ever-living Allah Hayat, as he has commanded us. Then Pharaoh answered, I will send you away, and you shall sacrifice to Yahuwah, your ever-living Allah Hayat, in the wilderness, only in departing, walk not a long journey. Now entreat for me. And Mashaha answered, I will go forth from you and pray and entreat Al Yahuwah, the ever-living, and he will turn back the gadflies from Pharaoh and from his servants and from his people. Tomorrow, nevertheless, Pharaoh should not continue to deceive and not allow the people to go away to sacrifice to Yahuwah. 
All right, let's see what Jasper has to say. <clears throat> Notwithstanding all this, the anger of Yahuwah did not turn from them, and his hand was stretched out against all the Egyptians to smite them with every heavy plague. And he sent and smote their dust to lice, and the lice became in Egypt to the height of two cubits upon the earth. The lice were also very numerous in the flesh of man and beast and all the inhabitants of Egypt. Also upon the king and queen, uh, Yahuwah sent the lice, and it grieved Egypt exceedingly on account of the lice. Notwithstanding this, the anger of Yahuwah did not turn away, and his hand was still stretched over out over Egypt. And Yahuwah sent all kinds of beasts of the field into Egypt, and they came and destroyed all Egypt, man and beast, and trees, and all things that were in Egypt. And Yahuwah sent fiery serpents. You see, I highlighted there. I'm going to talk about that tonight. He sent fire. So this wasn't talked about in the uh, the Masoretic, interestingly enough. He sent fiery serpents, scorpions, mice, weasels, toads together with other creeping in dust. I'm going to quickly comment here that um, I, in the past, like in my Seraphims of the Wasteland paper and others, I talked about how fiery serpents uh, can easily be, uh, in heavenly terms, the seraphim angels, all right, the fiery ones, the fiery serpents. They're serpentine reptilian creatures that are the fiery ones. Um, however, and, and you also see a fiery serpent that's put on the pole in, in the Torah as well. We'll get to it later this year. And, and in, the, in, in the account where the fiery serpents come down to kill everyone in the plague, in uh, the children of Israel, I, comment on, I commented, are those angels, are those seraphim reptilian angels coming to kill everybody? Now, here what's interesting is that these fiery serpents that come in, they could be the angels. Um, but they are also numbered amongst actual animals, scorpions, mice, weasels, toads, and so, and other creeping things. And so is this one of those on earth as in heaven things? Is there an actual creature on this earth or did there used to be who somehow was kind of compared or represented to these seraphim angels? All right. So I'm going to look at that a little bit in a few minutes. Flies, hornets, fleas, bugs, and gnats, each swarm according to its kind. And all reptiles and winged animals, according to their kind, came to Egypt and grieved the Egyptians exceedingly. I'm in this really scary chair. There's no um, armrest. And I keep thinking there are. And it's like, I go like, like I, I'm lying. I just wouldn't you love it if like, I fell over, you see my feet come up. And I'm like, ow. So I feel like I'm going to fall on this chair. And the fleas and flies came into the eyes and ears of the Egyptians, and the hornet came upon them and drove them away. This is intense, just in Jasher. And they removed from it into their inner rooms, and it pursued them, the hornets. They're following them into every room of the house. That sounds lovely. Uh, it can't roll in the water, apparently, because it's blood. And when, the, and when the Egyptians hid themselves on account of the swarm of animals, they locked their doors after them, and Allah Hayam ordered the Sula Nuth, the Sulanuth, which was in the sea to come up and go into Egypt. Now, I have spent the last several years of my life trying to figure out what is the Sulanuth. Apparently, other people have too, and there are no answers to be found on the internet. Maybe there is some book out there that we have yet to discover. I would assume that would be the case, where the Sulanuth is described. But as you can see here in the next verse, and she had long arms. So it's a she, and I told you Leviathan is a she. And she had long arms, 10 cubits in length of the cubit of a man. It, 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 it <laughs> actually reminded of Godzilla, actually, here, uh, coming out of the sea, you know, with the, like the hands out and stuff like that, and like ripping open rooftops and, you know, coming down on. 
And she went upon the roofs and uncovered the raft, uh, rafting and flooring and cut them and stretched forth her arm to the house and removed the lock and the bolt and opened the houses of Egypt. Is, is, if that's not a horror film, then I don't know what it is. Uh, afterward came the swarm of animals in the houses of Egypt. So now we're like in Jumanji here, right? Like the rhino and the hippo are like bursting through the, you know, up the staircases. And the swarm of animals destroyed the Egyptians and agreed and aggrieved them exceedingly. All right. So here we have a, a picture here of a someone's depiction of a seraphim angel. Kind of interesting. It's a fiery one. Um, they should have made it more, I think, reptilian uh, looking. Uh, but then we have here a kind of like a pterodactyl type of, of creature. And it has been speculated um, if these are the fiery serpents that are being talked about. Uh, there are, you can see here on the far right where there's a, they literally put a flying snake on a pole for that incident. You see there are all the, the, the fiery snakes coming in or the wing snakes coming in and biting everybody. And, you know, I'm of the mindset that, you know, you're, you're, we're supposed to deny the dinosaurs existed, apparently, because all fossils are a hoax or whatever. But, you know, I'm of the mind that these uh, dinosaur dragon, like I should say dinosaurs, these dinosaurs were much more serpentine dragon looking than they make out in the modern films. And I do have some evidence to back that up. Actually, a lot of evidence to back that up. Uh, but this is interesting because... The, uh, this is Herodotus, and I like to quote from him every so often, and he's talking about these winged serpents that lived in Arabia and Egypt. There was a place in Arabia situated very near the city of Buto, to which I went on hearing of some winged serpents. So he hears this report. He wants to go check this out for himself. And when I arrived there, I saw bones and spines of serpents in such quantities as it would be impossible to describe. So he's seeing, I guess, thousands of them. It is reported that at the beginning of spring, winged serpents fly from Arabia towards Egypt. But the um, ibises, those would be like a type of stork. I'll show you a picture. A, uh, he says a sort of bird. Meet them at the pass and do not allow the serpents to go by, but kill them. So these, these cranes or these storks, uh, ibises, I guess, appropriately, they, they love to eat these for dinner. They find them, they fly down. They, they, so that tells us that these winged serpents are not that big. If they can fit in the mouth of a, uh, of a uh, crane, uh, of, a, of a big bird that, you know, they're, they're big like a snake, but they're, they're not huge. So uh, whatever, whatever, if these are like pterodactyl type creatures, you know, they would have been, you know, they would have been like bat size uh, by this time. The form of the serpent is like that of the water snake, but he has wings without feathers and as like as possible to the wing of a bat. I, I think he's describing a um, one of those uh, pterodactyl type creatures. And then we again see Herodotus say in another book, again, uh, Arabia is the most distant to the south of all inhabited countries. And this is the only country which produces frankincense and myrrh and, and cassia and cinnamon and, uh, and gum mustache. All these except myrrh are difficult for the Arabians to get. They gather frankincense by burning the storax note, which Phoenicians carried to Hellas. They burn this and so get the frankincense for the spice bearing trees are guarded by small winged snakes. So they live in these spice trees. They're of varied color, um, many around each tree. So it's interesting because they're not like this is a straight brown color. They would be like multi-colored, just like a snake. These are the snakes that attacked Egypt. 
or they attack Egypt. Nothing except the smoke of storax will drive them away from the trees. So they smoke them out. Now, Josephus, he talks about an interesting account when Moshe, um, I'll give you the story real quick. And, and Moshe, this is uh, contextually, I skipped this last week when I made the comment that Moshe lived a life like Forrest Gump. You know, he had like all these different adventures before he went to Egypt. And uh, he became a king of a, um, of a city. And the way he became king of the city, actually Balaam and I think his sons were king of the city. He ran them out. And this is how he did it. But Moshe prevented the enemies and took and led his army before those enemies were apprised of, of his attacking them. For he did not march by the river, but by land, where he gave a wonderful demonstration of, uh, I'll just skip all this. You can see where it's highlighted here. Um, so let's see. Um, well, actually, I always say that Then the next sentence is really awesome. For when the ground was difficult to be passed over because of the multitude of serpents, which had produced in vast numbers, so these, the, basically Balaam, he put like this pit full of these winged serpents. Uh, he put them all there so that they would come and just bite you and kill you and, you know, peck out your eyes and probably poison them and all that kind of stuff. And there's no way to get past them, right? Uh, and it said, uh, which it produces in vast numbers and indeed a singular in some of these uh, those productions, which other countries do not breed. And yet such a, as are worse than others in power and mischief and an unusual fierceness of sight, some of which is sent out of the ground unseen and also fly in the air. So that's really interesting. They live in the trees, they live in the ground, in like holes, probably caves, they come out like bats, they come and fly in the air, they peck your eyes out, they kill you, and so come upon men at unawares and do them a mischief. So this is like straight up Jurassic Park stuff. Moshe invented a wonderful stratagem to preserve the army safe and without hurt, for he made baskets like unto the arcs of sedge and filled them with those are those birds again, the Ides, uh, same one that Herodotus talked about, and carried them along with them, which animal is the greatest enemy to serpents imaginable, for they fly from them when they come near them. And as they fly, they are caught and devoured by them, as if done by the hearts. All right, so this same story, by the way, that Josephus talks about, he where did he source that information from? He got it from Jasher. It's one of the, the other evidences that, uh, and the Jews, by the way, hate Josephus. Like, they're not giving this guy credit. Uh, so he probably sources from Jasher. So this is what they look like. These are the birds uh, that Moshe put into the baskets and he released and ate all these uh, fiery serpents, these winged serpents. And we see Herodotus say the same thing. So I'm not going to read this whole story here, but this is in Jasher where it talks about it. You can read it for yourself in Jasher chapter 75. And here's an interesting uh, medieval French uh, wood carving of one of these winged serpents. And as you can see, it looks like a serpentine creature. I mean, it's just very uh, coiled and everything like that. And I, I actually think that these dinosaurs were much more coiled, serpentine looking like this than they're made out in the films. And um, again, I have some more evidence for that. But anyways, this this appeared to be in the, the dark ages, you know, the medieval age that they were seeing them still in and uh, engraving them. Um, I'm not going to go into all this tonight. Uh, I wanted to touch it last week, but uh, this was commenting on the connection I was making here was uh, in Jasher where it talks about that the time O'Shea is put into the basket is when all the children were being killed off and they were put into gardens. 
you guys remember I covered this in the Children of the Mud Flood uh, presentation, and uh, they were put in the, the the gardens, and the Egyptians tried to like mow them over, and they couldn't. So they were just sprouting out of the ground. So it's really interesting when you get into the 1800s, you see a very similar terminology being used of all these children cropping up without parents. You know, we were discussing beforehand about all the parents going, you know, all the adults going to these insane asylums, um, and then you get all these children all over the world. They're being shipped off on trains. You got all this you know, these postcards here, just, you know, women lifting them up in gardens and they're sh shaking them out of trees. Uh, here you have an incubator right here, all the incubator babies. Um, here they are being hatched on farms, all these children coming out of places. The connection I wanted to make, let's just skip some of this, is with the storks. So where are the storks? There's the orphan train, there are all the babies on the trains. But here's the storks. Now, what's interesting about storks is that, keep in mind, these are the ones that are eating the fiery serpents, the biggest uh, enemy to these fiery serpents. And I, there's a connection, I think, between on earth as it is in heaven. Storks are seen as, as spiritual creatures. I actually took my sons and, of course, my wife as well, uh, to see uh, The Boy and the Heron. It's a Studio Ghibli film. I love Studio Ghibli films. It's Japanese anime films. Um, and they just they get it right on so many issues. And this one was about a... Um, the heron, which is a type of stork, you know, type of crane creature that has the ability to transcend the material into the spiritual realm, kind of the gateway between the two. And that's how these are perceived. That's why the babies were, the storks were delivering all these babies in the 1800s. We have just tons of photos of them. This is a creepy one here where it's a, a baby apparently being born out of a cabbage patch. I mean, that's kind of like, what's going on with that? And here you have more bunch of babies coming out of cabbages, um, cabbage parades. Uh, but anyways, the stork. And so the storks are the ones that are eating these fiery serpents. I find that really fascinating. So they're like the one enemy, the fiery serpents. And they are also, you know, identified with carrying babies into this world from the, the soul sea. You know, they could transcend into the spiritual realm, take the preexistent souls, deliver them. Um, and anyways, interesting stuff to be found there. Uh, let's see. Do I have time to read all this, even though it's probably all awesome? Um, no, I don't. All right. That's just covering what I already talked about, about all the children being born in the fields, how Balaam is trying to kill them off, and they're just raking these babies up, and they're just all these Hebrew children. So it's coming out of the earth, and the angels are feeding them in the, in the earth. All right. Continuing with Shamawath chapter, of, well, we're probably in like chapter seven or eight at this point. Meshaha accordingly went forth from the face of Pharaoh and prayed to Al-Yahuwaha, and the ever-living answered Meshaha and removed the gadflies from Pharaoh and from his servants and from his people, and none remained. Pharaoh, however, made vehement um, his heart even after this and would not send away the people. Consequently, Yahuwaha, the ever-living, said to Al-Meshaha, go to Pharaoh and tell him, thus says Yahuwaha, the ever-living, Alahayam, the Hebrews, send forth my people and they will serve me. However, if you are unwilling to send them away and you again hold fast with them, behold, the hand of Yahuwah the ever living, he will exist and shall bring upon your livestock that are in the plains and upon your horses and asses and camels and cattle and sheep a very severe death plague. But Yahuwah the ever living will distinguish between the livestock of Yashrael and between the livestock of Mitraim, and all in all the livestock of Yashrael, nothing shall die. And Yahuwah said and appointed, and again, war of the gods, right? He's saying, look, in Goshen, where all the Hebrews are, nothing's going to die. Nothing 
that's going to harm them. You're going to see that this, you know, if you turn to Yahuwaha, you too can experience life, right? And Yahuwah, the ever-living, uh, Dabar, Ath-Dabar, he fashioned this on the morrow, and he caused to be destroyed all the livestock of Mitzrayim. But the livestock of the sons of Yashrael died not one. Pharaoh sent to examine, and he discovered that of the livestock of Yashrael, not any had died. That's interesting. He's like looking into it now. He's like, how in the world are all of our livestock dying, all of our livestock dying and not his? Yet Pharaoh made heavy his heart. It would not send away the people. That has to be the, the thing. If, if anybody fears anything, I mean, you know, when we're talking about a fear of God, a fear of Allah Hayam, if you guys want to fear anything, it's having your heart hardened. And I've seen, we've probably all seen, I'm sure you guys have seen, I have seen it in real time that put the fear of Allah Hayam in me, where I saw godly, righteous people get so hardened that, that it, the entire Bible, you know, the Yahuwah became dark to them, just darkness. That, that, like, this is a reason why everybody here listening, you need to guard the commands, like guard the commands, because if you do not, and if you don't do it with a humble, circumcised heart, if you do not seek to have a circumcised heart instead of circumcised flesh, um, this too can happen to you. And then you guys know, you know, I'm not like a fear porn guy, but this is what I fear. Like, I do not want to have a hardened heart. And, you know, it, it could be some sp spirit that enters me, like the spirit of jealousy or something like that. And it starts, and Yahuwah starts handing you over to your desires. And, you, you know, he starts giving you what you want. That's a scary prospect. To get everything that you desire. And Yahuwah, the ever-living, he declared to Al-Mashaha and Al-Aaron, Lay hold to yourselves handfuls and both fists of suits from a furnace, and let Meshaha fling them unto Hashamayam, to the heavens, before the eyes of Pharaoh. And he will exist as dust upon all the land of Vitrim, and he will exist upon man and upon beast as boils, breaking out into uh, pustules in all the land of Vitrim. And they seized hold of the suits of the furnace, and they stood to the face of Pharaoh, and Meshaha flung it unto Hashamayam. And the boils existed with uh, pustules breaking forth on man and on beast. And the sacred scribes were not able to stand to the face of Meshaha because of the face of the boils. Boils existed upon the sacred scribes and upon all Mitraim. But Yahuwah the ever-living strengthened Pharaoh's heart so he would not hear and obey to them just as Yahuwah the ever-living spoke to Meshaha. And Yahuwah the ever-living declared to Al-Meshaha, Arise at daybreak and stand to the face of Pharaoh and say to him like this, Thus says Yahuwah, the ever-living, Allahayah, the Hebrews, Send away my people that they may serve me or else in an instant, like the stroke of a hammer or an anvil or the, or the tread of a foot. This time I will send all my slaughter weapons to your heart and in your people so that you will know that there is not one like me in all the earth. For now I will send out my hand and I will strike you and your people in the matter of the death plague, and you will be concealed from Ha'aratz. On account of this, I have caused you to stand firm in opposition to show you my strength, so that my name and character may be inscribed throughout all Ha'aratz. Yet again, if you continue to lift yourself up against my people to pre pre prevent them from going out, then behold, 
I will reign at the appointed time in the future, a very fierce hail, such as such as has not been seen been in Mitreen from the day it was established until now. That's an intense hail. I've been in some hailstorms, but I'll tell you, I've been in some golf ball size hailstorms, but this is you know, this is gonna be different. Therefore, send your livestock to seek refuge and with all that belongs to you in the plains. So this is like, he's warning. He's warning Pharaoh this time. Uh, he's like, you can divert this disaster just by listening to my command and you know, just do it. Just do the command. Uh, but I'm sure Pharaoh had grace, right? All the men and all the beasts which will be found in the plains and is not gathered into houses. Then the hail will go down upon them and kill them. Those of the servants of Pharaoh who reverently feared uh, at the bar Yahuwah gathered their servants and their livestock into their houses. So that's interesting. There were some of the servants of Pharaoh, and I'll let you in on one of them uh, very soon here. But those who had not set his heart to Al-Dabar Yahuwah, then he left his servants and livestock in the plains. How in the world at this point could you be so brain dead? Like after all this, to go like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you would have to be like just neg like malpracticed by this point, you know, which kind of a scary thought that probably would happen more than we than I care to give credit to today. And Yahuwah declared to Mashaha, stretch out your hand to Hashamayam and hail, and he will exist in all the land of Mitraim, upon man and upon beast, and upon all the herbs of the plain in the land of Mitraim. So Mashaha stretched forth his branch to Hashamayam. And Yahweh had given voices and hail and fire. She did walk upon uh, the earth. And he did pour down hail over the land of Mitzrayim. And hail, he did exist in fire from seizing hold in the midst of the hail. Very cruel. Such as had never existed in the land of Mitzrayim since it had become a nation. The hail, he struck in all the land of Mitzrayim over all which was in the plains. From man and upon beast and over all the green herbage of the plain. The hail, he struck every tree of the plain breaking it into pieces, only in the land of Goshen, upon which at that time the sons of Yashorel dwelt, no hail existed there. So if there were any trees standing, um, you know, any stop signs on the street corner standing, anything like that, any roof rooftops, uh, I guess it, it didn't break through the roofs, right, if the uh, animals came in. But that being stated, this is what we read in the Aramaic Targum. I did probably cite this a couple times in this Torah portion. Uh, Heob or Job or Yav, who reverenced the word of Yahuwah among the servants of Pharaoh, gathered together his servants and his flocks within the house. But Balaam, who did not set his heart upon the word of Yahuwah, left his servants and his flocks in the field. That's messed up. He left his servants too. That's the uh, Jonathan Targum there, 9, 20-21. All right, and this is uh, probably back into Jasher. Let's celebrate this. Uh, notwithstanding this, the anger of Yahuwah did not turn away from the Egyptians, and his hand was yet stretched forth against them. And Allahayam sent the pestilence, and the pestilence pervaded Egypt, and the horses and asses, and in the camels, and herds of oxen, sheep, and in man. And when the Egyptians rose up early in the morning to take their cattle to pasture, they found all their cattle dead. And there remained of the cattle of the Egyptians only one in ten. And of the cattle belonging to Yashua and Goshen, not one died. So that's interesting there. It says that um, one in ten survived of the Egyptians. 
And Allahayam sent a burning inflammation in the flesh of the Egyptians, which burst their skins. Sounds lovely. And it became a severe itch in all the Egyptians from the soles of their feet to the crowns of their heads. That's the worst, like the feet. Man. It's like one thing when it's like, you know, scratch your head. But man, your feet. And many boils were in their flesh that their flesh wasted away until they became rotten and putrid. Notwithstanding this, the anger of Yahuwah did not turn away, and his hand was still stretched out over all Egypt. And Yahuwah sent a very heavy hail, which smoked their vines and broke their fruit trees and dried them up that they fell upon them. Also, every green herb became dry and perished, for a mingling fire descended amidst the hail. Therefore, the hail and the fire consumed all things. Also, men and beasts that were found abroad perished of the flames of fire and of the hail, and all the young lions were exhausted. That's kind of interesting, the young lions. And Yahuwah sent and brought numerous locusts into Egypt, the chasel, salam, chargol, and chagol, locusts each of its kind, which devoured all that the hail had left remaining. Then the Egyptians rejoiced at the locust, because <laughs> they had food, although they consumed the produce of the field, and they caught them in abundance and salted them for food. And so Yahuwah is like, wait a second, no, you can't do that. That's cheating. So, and Yahuwah turned a mighty wind to the sea, which took away all the locusts. That's, I imagine it's like in their hand, they're salting it, and the wind comes, they're like, oh man, it's like the flies off. Even those that were salted, so there you go. I wasn't imagining things, and thrust them into the Red Sea. Not one locust remained within the boundaries of Egypt. All right, we are, oh, we are almost done. We're going to finish this up, and then we're going to end with the um, the Exodus story according to Egypt. And if you have never heard this before, you want to stay in it and hold on to something. Uh, you know, hold someone tight. Find a loved one and hug them while I read it. But let's finish the um today's Torah portion in the paleo and Pharaoh sent and called out for Mashaha and for Aaron. And he said, swearing oaths, I have erred this stroke of the anvil. Yahuwah um, ha zadak sadayak sadayak. The ever living is upright and just. And I and my people are the guilty ones and treat him out. Yahuwah that there should exist no more. The voices Allah Hayam and the hail. And I will release you and will not more stand in opposition. We know that's not going to take. Tune in next week. And Mashaha declared to him, in going outside the city, I will spread my palms to Yahuwah, ever living. At that time, the voices will cease and the hail will not exist. Uh, wait a second here. Um, so what I... This is kind of really interesting. Um, the voice, the voices of Allah Hayam. So he's hearing voices now, Pharaoh, um, and he wants those to stop, make the voices stop. <laughs> and, he, and Moshe promises at that time, the voices will cease and the hail will not exist. So that you know that uh, Arat belongs to Yahuwah, the ever living Allah Hayam. So the flax and the barley were struck, for the barley was in. Uh, Abayab and the flax had budded, and the wheat and the rye were not smitten, given they were later. Mashaha went out from Pharaoh, out of the city. He spread his palms to Yahuwah the ever living, and the voices ceased, and the hail did not drop down onto the land. But when Pharaoh observed that the rain and hail and voices had ceased, he again erred, and his heart was made heavy, both he and his, and his servants.
Why am I not surprised? And he seized the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not send away the sons of Yashorel, just as Yahuwah the ever-living had foretold by the hand of Mishaha. Now, at this point, I mean, it's, it's all escalating. And you just figure, like, Moses is like, what now? I mean, like, you have to, you know, Moses is a, a super humble guy, all right? I mean, but he's, he's got to have confidence by this point. Like, he's got to go like, man, like, all I did was just stretch out my rod or, you know, whatever, and all these things happened, and Egypt is almost destroyed, and this guy is still like a hardened heart, like what in the world is going to happen next? So, of course, tune in next week. And let's turn to the book of manuscripts. This comes from the uh, the Colbrin. Read a few books from Colbrin. We went through a book of Britain, book of wisdom, book of creation. Uh, I do love the Colbrin um, for its many historical details. And this is absolutely wild. So, like I said, this is from the Egyptian perspective, chapter five of the book of manuscripts, the destroyer part three. So yes, there is the destroyer part one and part two. Um, and um, I'll just let you guys figure out who the destroyer is. Um, I've commented on this before. It, it, it probably is the same as El Shaddai, right? So whenever we're singing El Shaddai, um, the Amy Grant song, and it's all sweets and, you know, little guitar and flowers and stuff like that. And it's like, yeah, I'm not sure the Egyptians would have, you know, it's more like they would have played it to like a heavy metal song or something like that. The doom shape called the destroyer in Egypt was seen in all the lands thereabouts. Now, a lot of people will say that the destroyer is talking about like Nibiru or, you know, something like that. But then get this in color it was bright and fiery in appearance changing and unstable it twisted about it twisted about itself like a coil like like serpentine like water bubbling into a pool from an underground supply and all men agree it was a most fearsome sight it was not a great comet or a loosened star being more like a fiery body of flame and so now if you ever wanted to know what the pillar of fire was this is how the Egyptians are, uh, are describing it. So the entire time all this was happening with all these plagues in Egypt, the destroyer was there, El Shaddai, this, this fiery pillar is there. They, they could all see it. And this is how they're describing it. Its movements on high were slow. Below it swirled in the manner of smoke, and it remained close to the sun, whose face it hid. There... There was a bloody ridness about it. So it's almost like um, it's it's a uh, it's a plague almost on Ra, the sun god, as well. It's it's blocking out the sun. So there was a bloody ridness about it, which changed as it passed along its course. It caused death and destruction in its rising and setting. It swept the earth with great cinder rain and caused many plagues, hunger, and other evils. So they're accrediting this pillar of fire, the destroyer to the plagues of Egypt. It bit the skin of men and beasts until they became mottled with sores. And we saw that tonight. The earth was troubled and shook. The hills and mountains moved and rocked. The dark smoke-filled heavens bowed over earth. And a great howl came to the ears of living men. Are those the voices that they were that Pharaoh was hearing? It describes as great howls. Born to them upon the wings of the wind. It was the cry of the dark lord, the master of dread. 
Thick clouds of fiery smoke passed before him, and there was an awful hail of hot stones and coals of fire. The doom shape thundered sharply in the heavens and shot out bright lightnings. The channels of water were turned back into themselves when the land tilted, and great trees were tossed about and snapped like twigs. So we saw that too, like the uh, when the hail comes down, that it just it just devastates, just snaps the trees, right? Then a voice like ten thousand trumpets was heard over the wilderness. So there's more of that voice for you. And before, and I love that, the, like the 10,000 trumpets. You know, when you think about the apocalypse uh, trumpet sounds that people hear all over the world, some people are saying it's from the dumb tunnels or things like that. And, um, you know, I I don't know. I mean, maybe it is. Maybe it is. But like, what if it's actually coming from heaven, right? So they hear the voice like 10,000 trumpets was heard over the wilderness. And before its burning breath, the flames parted. The whole of the land moved and mountains melted. The sky itself roared like 10,000 lions in agony. And where did we see the lions in agony tonight, too, in Jasher? And bright arrows of blood sped back and forth across its face. Earth swelled up like bread upon the earth. This was the aspect of the doom shape called the destroyer when it appeared in days long gone by, in olden times. It is thus described in the old records, few of which remain. Isn't that interesting? So... Uh, we see that records are being scrubbed, right? So they're saying that that what they're describing, there were multiple records of it at one time from different sources. It is said that when it appears in the heavens above, earth splits open from the heat, like a nut roasted before the fire. This would be the day of the Lord. This is what um, a lot of people, Bible believers with good intent, get wrong. They get every time they read about the day of the Lord, the day of Yahuwah, they're like, that's a future event. It's a one day event. It's like, no, 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 no. There's been many days of Yahuwah. It's not just a one time event. This was, you could, you could stack this up to the day of Yahuwah. Um, then flames shoot up through the surface and leap about like fiery fiends upon black blood. The moisture inside the land is all dried up. The pastures and cultivated places are consumed in flames, and they and all trees become white ashes. So that's pretty intense. Like Egypt was just wiped out from flames. The doom shape is like a circling ball of flame, which scatters small fiery offspring in its train. It covers about a fifth part of the sky and sends writhing snake-like fingers down to earth. So are those the flaming serpents, the seraphim angels? Uh, it's talking about these writhing snake-like fingers down to earth that's coming out of it. I think that's what it is. I think it's describing angels coming out. Before it, the sky appeared fright, appears frightened, and it breaks up and scatters away. Midday is no brighter than night. It spawns a host of terrible things. These are things said of the destroyer in the old records. Read them with solemn heart, knowing that the doom shape has its appointed time and will return. It would be foolish to let them go unheeded. Now men say, such things are not destined for our days. May the great Allah Hayyam above grant that this be so. But come the day surely will, and in accordance with his nature, man will be unprepared. Chapter six, the dark days, and the dark days refers to the uh, the plagues of Egypt. The dark days began with the last visitation of the destroyer, and they were foretold by strange omens in the skies. All men were silent and went about with pale faces. 
The leaders of the slaves, which had built a city to the glory of Bom, stirred up unrest. So who are the leaders of the slaves? That would be Aaron and Moshe. And these slaves, we know that it says here, they built a city to the glory of Bom. And these leaders stirred up unrest amongst the slaves. So, you know, get back to work. You know, um, no soup for you. And no man raised his arm against them. They foretold great events of which the people were ignorant and in which the temple seers were not informed. That makes sense because we see this again with Balaam and his servants. All these wizards, they, you know, uh, they could not, they could look in their books, they could look at in the mysteries, they could do things, but they could not, they had no knowledge of what was happening. This just caught them totally off guard in their pride, in their, in their stubborn hearts. These were days of ominous calm when the people waited for the new not what the presence of an unseen unseen doom was felt the hearts of men were stricken laughter was heard no more and grief and wailing sounded throughout the land even the voices of children were stilled and they did not play together but stood silent the slaves became bold and insolent and what did the slaves do we'll see next week they actually loot egypt they like they become so bold and insolent that they go up to their masters and be like yeah i'll take all that stuff all that jewelry, all those clothes, and 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 they didn't like go in and just steal it. Like the people handed it over. Like yeah, take it, just get out of here, just go. And women were the possession of any man. Fear walked the land. And when it says women were the possession of any man, I, I'm taking that to be the Egyptians now, not the slaves. Um, they're just like succumbing to their just their almost their wickedness. They're just freaking out. Fear walked the land, and women became barren terror they could not conceive and those with child aborted well where have we read that before that actually comes from jasher as well not in the uh, exodus account but with uh, when the patriarchs went to egypt and it talked about uh, with uh with when they confronted yosef over benjamin and it talked about how the women in egypt aborted so it's kind of interesting interesting connection there all men closed up within themselves the days of stillness were followed by a time when the noise of trumpeting and trilling was heard in the heavens, and the people became as frightened beasts without a herdsman, as asses when lions prowl without their fold. Can you imagine? Like I talked about how loud the frogs were, but it's like sounds like these trumpets are blasting for a long time. I mean, can you imagine? That had to be amazing to bold. I mean, just absolutely amazing to be one of the slaves and you're one of the Hebrews, you're looking up, you're seeing El Shaddai up there. You're seeing, the, you know, this fiery uh, pillar up there night and day. Uh, and you're, you know, just these trumpets just blasting. I mean, you, I guess eventually you just learn to sleep through it, right? But uh, that just had to be amazing. Behold. The people spoke of the Alahayam of the slaves. And so we're speaking about Yahuwah here, the, the, the God of the slaves. And reckless men said, if we knew where this Allahayim were to be found, we would sacrifice to him. Now, they're they're confused because they're looking for idols, right? They looked through the record book. There is no idol of Yahuwah in Egypt. They're, they're, they, they can't even, and this is a part of their, their undoing, is that they couldn't even bring themselves apparently to fathom that there is an Allahayim that is above. You know, you can't. He is not represented by anything on this earth. But the uh, Allahayam of the slaves was not among them. 
He was not to be found within swamplands or in the brick pits. His manifestation was in the heavens for all men to see. That is like, ooh, that just gives me chills right there. But they did not see with understanding, nor would any God listen, for all were dumb because of the hypocrisy of men. So none, none of the other Allah would listen either. But, you know, the Colburn talks about this a lot. They talk about how, you know, the sun, the fact we see this glorious sun, the sun itself is not the end means. That is not to be worshipped. The moon is not to be worshipped, right? The stars are not to be worshipped. The sun is there to tell us that there is a greater light beyond the sun, that, you know, that, that you know, this greater light, it can't even be, no, nothing down here properly reflects it, right? And, uh, I mean, that's in true platonic terms, obviously. Um and of course, man turns to idolatry because that's, you know, in their simplicity of their minds, the normies, that's all they can really, you know, make sense of. The dead were no longer scared and were thrown into the waters. Those, I don't, those already in tune were neglected and many became exposed. They lay unprotected against the hands of thieves. So there you got some Egyptian grave robbers right there. He who once toiled long in the sun. Bearing the yoke himself now possessed oxen. He who grew no grain now owned a storehouse full. He who once dwelt at ease among his children now thirsted for water. He who once sat in the sun with crumbs and dregs was now bloated with food. He reclined in the shade, his bowels overflowing. Cattle were left. Uh, so I think that they're saying here that those who lived in comfort were thrown in discomfort. Those who had already been in discomfort, now they're just going in, they're ransacking everything, they're robbing tombs, throwing bodies out, no respect for the dead, no respect for their gods or their religion anymore, and they're just you know, filling themselves on the food of the rich, and spoils, war, that kind of stuff. Cattle were left unattended to roam in strange pastures, and men ignored their marks and slew the beast of their neighbors. No man owned anything. The public records were cast forth and destroyed. And no man knew who were slaves and who were masters. Hmm. The people cried out to the Pharaoh in their distress, but he stopped his ears and acted like a deaf man. So there we have a total um, agreement with everything we've read, read in Jasher, the Bible, everything. It's basically, you know, Yahuwah hardened his heart. Whereas it says here, he stopped his ears and acted like a deaf man. There were those who spoke falsely before Pharaoh and had gods hostile towards the land. Therefore, the people cried out for their blood to appease it. But it was not these strange priests who put strife in the land instead of peace. For no, for one was even of the house of Pharaoh and walked among the people unhampered. Dust and smoke, dust and smoke clouds darkened the sky and colored the waters upon which they fell with a bloody hue. Plague was throughout the land. The river was bloody and blood was everywhere total compliance with exodus the water was vile and men's stomachs shrank from drinking those who did drink from the river vomited it up for it was polluted the dust tore wounds in the skin of man and beast in the glow of the destroyer the earth was filled with redness vermin vermin bred and filled the air and face of the earth with loathsomeness wild beast afflicted with torments under the lashing sand and ashes came out of their layers in the wastelands and cave places and stalked the abodes of men so we saw this in jasher we talked about all the wild beasts coming in and and uh, coming to people's homes and stuff right they're coming out of the wastelands that is in total compliance with jasher all the tame beasts whimpered 
and the land was filled with the cries of sheep and moans of cattle. Trees throughout the land were destroyed and no herb of fruit was to be found. The face of the land was battered and devastated by a hail of stones, which smashed down all that stood in the path of the torrent. They swept down in hot showers and strange flowing fire ran along the ground in their wake. That again, straight out of Jasher. How in the world did that just happen? How in the world did that just agree with the book of Jasher? Because it talked about the hails. It doesn't say that in Exodus, but it says in, uh, at least from my reading of it, it said in Jasher that the there was a fire mixed with these strange stones that came down. And that's what this says right here. The fish of the river died in the polluted waters. Worms, insects, and reptiles sprang up from the earth in huge numbers. Again, we saw that in Jasher. We didn't talk about that in Exodus, though. Um, great gusts of wind brought swarms of locusts, which covered the sky. <laughs> Remember that? The, the locusts, they're salting, right? They're like, yeah, locusts. And they start salting when the wind blows them away again. As the destroyer flung itself through the heavens, it blew great gusts of cinders across the face of the land. The gloom, so there's like, now it's like a fire, Risa, right now. The actual fire is coming from Allah Hayam. The gloom of a long night spread a dark mantle of blackness, which extinguished every, every ray of light. How exciting is that? They just described the plague of darkness. None knew when it was day and when it was night, for the sun cast no shadow. Darkness was not the clean blackness, blackness of night, but a thick darkness in which the breath of man was stopped in their throats. Men gasped in a hot cloud of vapor, which enveloped all the land and snuffed out all lamps and fires. Wow, so this darkness is so extreme, it's actually snuffing out light. Any light, anything you would kindle just snuffs it out, unless if you're living in Goshen. Men were benumbed and lay moaning in their beds. None spoke to another or took food, for they were overwhelmed with despair. Ships were sucked away from their moorings and destroyed in great whirlpools. I wonder if this has anything to do with that strange creature from the Black Lagoon that came up out of the, the sea and started like lifting up roofs, created these whirlpools. And I, I wonder if there's a Leviathan connection there. It was a time of undoing. The earth turned over as clay spun upon a potter's wheel. The whole land was filled with uproar from the thunder of the destroyer overhead and the cry of the people. There was the sound of moaning and lamentation on every side. The earth spewed up its dead. Corpses were cast up out of the resting places and the embalmed were revealed to the sight of all men. Pregnant women miscarried and the seed of men was stopped. The craftsman left his task undone. The potter abandoned his wheel and the carpenter his tools and they departed to dwell in the marshes. All crafts were neglected and their slaves lured the craftsmen away. The dues of Pharaoh could not be collected, for there was neither wheat nor barley, goose nor fish. The rights of Pharaoh could not be enforced, for the fields of grain and the pastures were destroyed. The highborn and the lowly prayed together that life might come to an end, and the turmoil and thundering ceased to beat upon their ears. Terror was the companion of men by day, and horror their companion by night. Men lost their senses and became mad. They were distracted by frightfulness. On the great night of the destroyer's wrath, when its terror was at its height, there was a hail of rocks, and the earth heaved a pain rent her bowels. Oh, I'm sorry. And the earth heaved as pain rent her bowels. Gates, columns, and walls were 
consumed by fire, and the statues of gods were overthrown and broken. People fled outside their dwellings in fear and were slain by the hail. Those who took shelter from the hail were swallowed when the earth split open. Now that's a kind of an interesting telling there. I don't know if this is the Passover night because it's talking about uh, on, the, on the great night of the destroyer's wrath. Uh, this is actually the Passover night. This is one of the ways the angel of death killed people. Or if this is still talking about the hail that came down. Uh, the habitations of men collapsed upon those inside, and there was panic, panic on every side. So, for example, when the angel of death went and uh, killed the firstborn, did he, I don't know, how did he do it? Did he collapse roofs on people? I don't, I don't really know. I wasn't there. But the slaves who lived in huts in the reedlands at the place of pits were spared. And so, it's interesting. So all these people are dying and in Goshen, and it, it describes, I like how it describes it, in huts in the reedlands, at the place of the pits. The pits is where they would make the, the bricks, right? They were spared. The land burnt like tinder. A man watched upon his rooftops, and the heavens hurled wrath upon him, and he died. The land writhed into the wrath of the destroyer and groaned with the agony of Egypt. It shook itself, and the temples and palaces of the nobles were thrown down from their foundations. The highborn ones perished in the midst of the ruins. Uh... And I wonder if that's, oh, oh, here we go. And all the strength of the land was stricken. Even the great one, the firstborn of Pharaoh, died with the highborn in the midst of the terror and falling stone. So I'm wondering if the highborn, it says that the highborn once perished. This is at the heights of the destroyer. I'm wondering if this is a reference to the firstborns. The highborns were the firstborns. The children of princes were cast out into the streets, and those who were not cast out died within their abodes. There were nine days of darkness and upheaval while a tempest raged such as never had been known before when it passed away brother buried brother throughout the land men rose up against those in authority and fled from the cities to dwell in tents in the outlands egypt lacked great men to deal with the times because they were all killed off really if whatever survived the people were weak from fear and bestowed gold silver uh, lapis lazuli turquoise and copper upon the slaves and that's where we we're going to read next week where they just egypt just heat like like israel just looted egypt but in such a way that their masters like just just go just take everything just get out of here we don't ever want to see you again just take our stuff and to the, their priests they gave chalices urns and ornaments pharaoh alone remained calm and strong in the midst of confusion because as they said you know he was the close his eyes hand fingers to his ears the people turned to wickedness and their weakness and despair harlots walked through the streets unashamed women paraded their limbs and flaunted their womanly charms highborn women were in rags and the virtuous were mocked um and you know that's where they'd said earlier that like you know wives were just exchanged and that kind of stuff the slaves spared by the destroyer left the accursed land forthwith and again, these are the Hebrews. Their multitude moved in the gloom of a half dawn under a mantle of fine swirling gray ash, leaving the burnt fields and shattered cities behind them. What a scene that had to be. Many Egyptians attached themselves to the host. And we know this again. We're going to go into this in Exodus, that many of the Gentiles decided to become Hebrews and follow them into the wilderness. For one who was great led them forth. The, the, that would be Moses. So let me say this again. Read this again. Many Egyptians attached themselves to the host. For one who was 
magistrate led them forth, a priest prince of the inner courtyard. Wow. So that's Moshe right there. Fire mounted up on high, and it's burning left with the enemies of Egypt. It rose up from the ground as a fountain and hung as a curtain in the sky. In seven days, by Remwar, the accursed ones journeyed to the waters. They crossed the heaving wilderness while the hills melted around them. Above, the skies were uh, oh, torn. It should be torn with lightning. They were sped by terror, but their feet became entangled in the land, and the wilderness shut them in. They knew not the way, for no sign was constant before them. They turned before Noshari and stopped at Shokoth, the place of quarries. They, placed, they passed the waters of Maha and came by the valley of Pikaroth, northward of Mara. They came up against the waters which blocked their way. And this would be the Reed Sea. And their hearts were in despair. The night was a night of fear and dread, for there was a high moaning above, and black winds from the underworld were loosed. Wow. <clears throat> like Sheol itself, like moaning from Sheol. Or, wind, yeah, the, the, the voices, the wind from Sheol. And fire sprang up from the ground. The hearts of the slaves sank, shrank within them, for they knew the wrath of Pharaoh followed them and that there was no way of escape. They hurled abuse on those who led them. Strange rites were performed along the shore that night. The slaves disputed among themselves, and there was violence. And now I'll try to cover that when we get there, that uh, there was like four different camps within the Hebrews, within the Israelites. And uh, I think only one of them, you know, uh, agreed with Moshe. Uh, they were just turning in any which direction. They really were thrown in despair, which is unbelievable to think about, that you would actually walk out of a burning. It's like the ending to Pirates of the Caribbean when the whole thing is burnt down and it's all embers and stuff like that. And there's like, skeletons everywhere and you're walking out with the treasures in the loop and it's like they're still freaking out they they have like the destroyer el shaddai above them and it's just unbelievable um it just goes to show that um it, it doesn't matter if, like if you're standing in the presence of the most high if if you don't want to pursue righteousness there's there's nothing that anyone can do for you um so it's best to pursue righteousness not in his presence um Pharaoh had gathered his army and followed the slaves. After he departed, there were riots and disorders behind him, for the cities were plundered. The laws were cast out of the judgment halls and trampled underfoot in the streets. The storehouses and granaries were burst open and robbed. Roads were flooded, and none could pass along them. People lay dead on every side. The place was split, and the princes and officials fled so that none was left with authority to command. The list of numbers were destroyed. Public places were overthrown and households became confused and unknown. Pharaoh pressed on in sorrow, for behind him all was desolation and death. Before him were things he could not understand, and he was afraid, but he carried himself well and stood before his host with courage. He sought to bring back the slaves, for the people said their magic was greater than the magic of Egypt. <laughs> they <laughs> their magic was greater than the magic of Egypt, but it didn't go well for you. So, like, why? It like the, it's funny like the people who who understood like if you want to put it in terms of magic they're like wow the magic of these hebrews uh, god is really great i'm going to follow this this god i'm going to follow this god out to the wilderness um they had the right idea 
because they got it because they're like he just destroyed all this so i'm gonna go where he goes and the others are like yeah bring him back that's just like <laughs> those are the normies talking the host of pharaoh came upon the slaves by the saltwater shores but was held back from them by a breath of fire a great cloud was spread over the host and darkened the sky none could see except for the fiery glow and the unceasing lightnings which rent the covering cloud overhead and you guys will recall that the cloud came down it was light for yashiro but it was darkness for pharaoh and it's kind of interesting that they're, they're seeing lightnings in there a whirlwind arose in the east and swept over the encamped host a gale raged all night and in the red twilight uh, tw uh twilight dawn there was a movement of the earth the waters receded from the seashore and were rolled back on themselves there was a strange silence, and then in the gloom, it was seen that the waters had parted, leaving a passage between. Is this text not incredible or what? The land had risen, but it was disturbed and trembled. The way was not straight or clear. The water about uh, the waters about were as if spun within a bowl. The swampland alone remained undisturbed. From the horn of the destroyer came a high shrilling noise which stopped the ears of men. The, the slaves had been making sacrifices in despair. Their lamentations were loud. Now, before the strange sight, there was hesitation and doubt. For the space of a breath, they stood still and silent. Then all was confusion and shouting, some pressing forward into the waters against all who sought to flee back from the unstable ground. So that's interesting. So it's almost like we get this idea that Pharaoh, you know, handed the men maybe he did I, I i don't know but according to this text it, it's the idea that they led into the waters because of the unstable earth before behind them so yahuwah is driving them to the water to destroy them then in ox in exaltation their leader led them into the midst of the waters through the confusion yet many sought to turn back into the host behind them while others fled along the empty shores <clears throat> Um, so actually, I, I take that back. I'm sorry. Uh, that's talking about the Hebrews there. And so it seemed like some people, um, it, it, <laughs> some people just can't follow the shepherd, guys. I mean, I just, I, I don't know how to say this in any other light. You know, you can have Yahushua HaMashiach there, and it's like walk as Messiah walked, right? That's the phrase. Do, you know, what would Jesus do? You walk as he walked. And I, I kid you not, like, it's like we have the directions they're laid out in scripture the torah and it you know you it, it's like he's walking and he's doing something and it's like you just everyone's going off in different directions i guess that's the difference between the sheep and the goats right and so apparently according to this uh there were people who maybe maybe they I, whatever they just they ran off in different directions nobody saw them again all became still over the sea and upon the shore but behind the earth shook and boulders split open uh split with a great noise the wrath of heaven was removed to a distance and stood upwards of the two hosts still the host of pharaoh held its ranks firm and resolved before the strange and awful happenings and undaunted by the fury which raged by their side stern faces were lit darkly by the fiery curtain then the uh, the fury departed so the the this pillar rises up the, the destroyer rises up the, the fury departed and there was silence stillness spread over the land while the host of pharaoh stood without movement in the red glow then with a shout the captains went forward and the host rose up behind them the curtain of fire had rolled up into a dark billowing cloud which spread out as a canopy there was a stirring of the waters but they followed the evildoers past the place of the great whirlpool 
The passage was confused in the midst of the waters and the ground beneath unstable. Here in the midst of a tumult of waters, Pharaoh fought against the behind most of the slaves and prevailed over them. And there was a great slaughter amid the, amid the sand, the swamp and the water. The slaves cried out in despair, but their cries were unheeded. Their possessions were scattered. Now, if I'm reading this right, uh, the slaves that he's defeating here in the middle of the Reed Sea are those who were kind of going off in different directions and not following orders. And we often think about the, the water split right down the middle. That's how they show in the Hollywood films. But, you know, interestingly enough, according to a lot of Jewish literature, um, there, was, there may have been uh, actually multiple different, like, it might have been each tribe uh, going through its own. Like it maybe didn't part in one area; it could have parted in many different areas. And uh, and this is describing almost like more like a labyrinth, kind of like it seems like a whirlpool and kind of crazy. And uh, you know, some people are just like I said; they're just not following orders. They're marching orders. They're not following their shepherd. They're just doing their own thing, and it sounds like they're getting lost in the in the weeds. Their possessions were scattered behind them as they fled, so that the way was easier for them than for those who followed. Then the stillness was broken by a mighty roar, and through the rolling pillars of cloud, the wrath of the destroyer descended upon the host. The heavens roared as with a thousand thunders. The bowels of the earth were sundered, and the earth shrieked its agony. The cliffs were torn away and cast down. The dry ground filled beneath the waters, and great waves broke upon the shore, sweeping in rocks from seaward. The great surge of rocks and waters overwhelmed the chariots of the Egyptians who went before the footmen. The chariot of the Pharaoh was hurled into the air as if by a mighty hand and was crushed in the midst of the rolling waters. Tidings of the disaster came back by uh, Rajab, son of Thomat, who hastened on ahead of the terrified survivors because of his burning. He brought reports into the people that the host had been destroyed by blasts and deluge. The captains had gone, the strong men had fallen, and none remained to command. Therefore, the people revolted because of the calamities which had befallen them, as if they hadn't already been revolting. Cowards slunk from their lairs and came forth boldly to assume the high offices of the dead. Calmly and noble women, their protectors gone, were their prey. Of the slaves, the great number had perished before the host of Pharaoh. The broken land lay helpless, and invaders came out of the gloom like carrion. A strange people came up against Egypt, and none stood to fight, for strength and courage were gone. Now, um, I'm not prepared to do this tonight, but I do have notes where I, I talk about uh, when uh, the, this actually is in, shown in history that these invaders came up after Egypt was weakened and they completely destroyed Egypt afterwards. So it's it's like Egypt was already destroyed and this these invaders came in and just, just take a wrecking ball to whatever is left. Um, and of course, Egypt was never the same again after that. The invaders led by um, Alcanan came up out of the land of gods, the land of gods, because of the wrath of heaven which had laid their land waste. There, too, had been a plague of reptiles and ants, steins and omens, and an earthquake. There also had been turmoil and disaster, disorder and famine, with the gray breath of the destroyer sweeping the ground and stopping the breath of men. So that's interesting. So the destroyer, what was going on in Egypt, spread to other areas of the earth as well. They all felt it. Antura gathered together the remains of his fighting men and the fighting men who were left in Egypt and set forth to meet the children of darkness who came out of the eastern mountains by way of the wilderness and by way of 
uh, Yethnobis. They fell upon the stricken land from behind the gray cloud before the lifting of the darkness and before the coming of the purifying winds. Um, let's see how much further. Okay, last page. Here we go. Uh, Rajib went with Pharaoh and met the invaders at um, Heroshur, but the hearts of the Egyptians were faint within them. Their spirits were no longer strong, and they fell away before the battle was lost, deserted by the gods above and below. They were judged by uh, Yahuwaha. Their dwellings destroyed, their households scattered. They were as men already half dead. Their hearts were still filled with terror and with the memory of the wrath, which had struck them from out of heaven. They were still filled with the memory of the fearsome sight of the destroyer, and they knew not what they did. Pharaoh did not return to his city. He lost his heritage and was seized by a demon for many days. It's interesting here because it says that Pharaoh didn't die. And it seems like all the accounts, they all agree on that. His army died, but he didn't die. His women were polluted, and his but his chariot was wrecked in the ocean. So somehow he was able to climb out of the ocean. Like he, It didn't take him like everybody else. Anyways, his women were polluted, meaning that the as they described the cowards coming out, that the weak people, now they were coming out and they were taking everyone's women. And his estates plundered. The children of darkness defiled the temples with rams and ravished women who were crazed and did not resist. Who are these children of darkness? Uh, the the Corbin talks about like these children of darkness in other areas, and it's almost like makes them out be like, like these, this race of like the children of like Satan or whatever. I mean, it just, I don't know if these are like the Rephaim or what, um, but it seems like they were reserved to come in. And, you know, these demons that uh, took over Pharaoh here, uh, it seems to be the, a connection with the children of darkness. Anyways, the children of darkness defiled the temples with rams and ravished women who were crazed and did not resist. They enslaved all who were left, the old, young men and boys. They oppressed the people and their delight was in mutilation and torture. That's a, that's a sad end for those who decided not to leave uh, with the Hebrews. Pharaoh abandoned his hopes and fled into the wilderness beyond the province of the lake, which is in the west towards the south. He lived a goodly life among the sand wanderers and wrote books. Oh, I would love to get my hands on those books. Good times came again, even under the invaders, um, and ships sailed upstream. The air was purified, the breath of the destroyer passed away, and the land became filled again with growing things. Life was renewed throughout the whole land. Care taught these things to the children of light in the days of darkness, after the building of the uh, Rambudith, before the death of the pharaoh Ankid. This is written in this land and in our tongue by Luidar, who himself chose it for saving. It was not seen until the later days. All right. Well, that concludes tonight's uh, Torah portions. I hope you guys uh, uh, enjoyed that. I mean, that last part with Coburn was wild. I love going through Pamela's translations. There'll be more next week. Uh, so uh, there's going to be no late show tonight. So you guys can all turn in early. I will as well. Shabbat Shalom, everybody. One more time. Enjoy your weekend. Get lots of rest. We'll do this again next week.